goes still, though. Yeah, but it's not bad. It's, it's not like it used to be, and you're louder than usual, so that's something. Well, the mic is turned to the right direction. <laughs> that's it, right. Anyway. <laughs> all right, so what's the, what's the first film? Because my notes are all a jumble. I'll follow your lead. How about that? Yeah, okay. sounds good. Oh, you're listening to the Weird Sins Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, take a bite of the rotten apple, New York City cop or crime films of the 70s. On a new improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes oh. Network, now on Poppy. <laughs> So good evening, and welcome to the first episode of the 14th season, I can't believe it's that far, of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, the Maven of Sleeves, Virago of Vituperativeness, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, we'll be talking a set of films that almost form a genre of their own. While there have been any number of policiers, policiatechi, cop films, revenge films, and such like, hailing from both domestic and foreign shores, and we devoted several shows to the same, like our recent French crime show, our Italian policiatechi show, our German creamy show, and our Nakatsu borderless action slash Seijin Suzuki show. But the one that always resonated best was the one that I was exposed to from a very young age, usually on the gritty crime and kung fu movie showcase that was syndicated WMYW Channel 5, before it became Fox or whatever the hell happened to it. These films were often, though not always, quote, respected by critics and the general public at large, but all of them bore that dark, almost despairing claustrophobia and realistic, frankly, realistic feel of what I and others were living every day out in the streets locally. Far from the diglo nonsense of the 60s reruns or the sunnier Hollywood-based fare of the day, the streets were crowded, they were filthy, they were filled with the detritus of the post-hippie era, the junkies, the odd artsy types, the gangs, the whores, the punks, and even before that. The days where you were damn glad to see Curtis Lee was guardian angels on a subway, if you were crazy enough to use the subway at all. Everything was covered in graffiti, buildings were collapsing into tenements, crack houses, illicit hookup spots for rough trade cruising types, garbage in the streets, the, we had a garbage crisis with giant rats everywhere, yeah. decay in every sense of the word. These are films that wallow in what in later years will be referred to as urban blight, but not so much, quote, celebrating all the palpable danger and decline of an impoverished post-blackout Manhattan in the days after the Watson-Newark riots, and not long past Ford telling the mayor and city to go screw ourselves when asked for a federal relief, but just capturing this, you know, capturing this whole aesthetic and soul vibe of a New York City that is... Uh, in some ways, thankfully, but with things going the way they are lately, maybe we kind of need some of that back. They're long gone. The streets were exciting. These were the days of Studio 54, CBGBs, the original Saturday Night Live, but they were also filled with menace. Cocaine, speed, downers, needle popping, they were all rampant. I knew one oh, guy who... Well, everything aside from the needle popping was fun. <laughs> I knew one guy who claimed to have gotten mugged on a regular basis. Seriously. Nobody in their right mind stepped in the Central Park after sunset. Washington Square Park was known for decades as Needle Park. And the East Village? Forget about Alphabet City or the Bronx or Brooklyn. 
This was a special breed of film that focused on crooked, flawed cops working outside a busted system, but not with the heroic vibe of Reaganite action heroes. These guys paid for painting outside the lines. The Denomonts were never triumphant, and all victories were Pyrrhic. Vigilante justice and community action were about as fantastic as these films got, and as close to actual comeuppance as anyone got. Not every film we talked to tonight is set entirely in the confines of Manhattan, but everyone bears that same exact vibe and aesthetic. This is the story, in a way, of our childhood and early youth to young adulthood, as told in some very memorable films. Take a bite of the rotten apple. So, again, I am Doc Savage, and with me, Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm of the age where I grew up during this period, uh, my teenage years. Yeah, it was my childhood. So. <laughs> yeah, my teenage years were during this period, and... Uh, yeah, I used to go to Deuce to watch movies and mm-hmm. stuff like that when I was in my teenage years. And so there's a lot of stuff I saw. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff I experienced. Yeah. And um, how it got what you described at the outset, uh, what you described, got so bad in New York City that the cops came up with these flyers. Uh, I think they were calling it Fear City. Yes, yes, that's right. Welcome to Fear City. online, folks. Uh, the Fear City pamphlets from New York. Look it up. I think it actually, if you look up Welcome to Fear City, you'll find it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was pretty grungy everywhere. Yeah, the, the, the graffiti, while, uh, while attractive and artful, it just got out of hand. It's coming back, too. I see it a lot now. Yeah, but still, it's not like it was when the subways no, were no, filled no, with like, it and you know, all those like also, camps and junkies and God knows what else. This period actually went up to around 82. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, you know, just like generalizing. Oh, and don't forget, it got worse later in the way with the crack epidemic and AIDS. Like, oh, yeah. 89 so, under Dinkins? Yeah, oh, my God. Crack, crack epidemic, but everything else peaked around 82. Then it got worse with other things. And it's totally true about the uh, drug epidemic because I remember um, th- there was a time when I looked smelt and, <laughs> and thin, and I looked like Lou Reed. Yes. Or Andrew Eldritch, either way. <laughs> or that guy. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's funny when, when you just doing your thing, and probably was doing a lot of blow in those days. <laughs> And they got really thin, and uh, you know, my friends would say, wow, you look great. I'm like, thanks, man. Um, <laughs> and, and the girls throw themselves at you. I kid you not. Mm-hmm. And I was on a train one day coming back from my job working for the New York Public Library. Keep this. And this beautiful blonde, uh, you know, like some of the old trains had two-seaters, you know, like only two people could fit. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Stop talking to me. I'm like, oh hi, yeah. I was like, we're chatting. What do you, you know? I like your leather jacket. Yeah, I was wearing leather back then, and, mm-hmm. and I had a t-shirt on, and I think it was Keith Richards or something. And she goes, can I give you my phone number? <laughs> I'm like, fuck. <laughs> this is easy. <laughs> she opens up her purse and there's all these needles. Oh Jesus. And I don't think she was a diabetic. You guys get my truck. Oh, I know. I've had my own experiences like that. Yeah, go ahead. And at this point, I was living with my dad because I was probably about 21, 22. Mm-hmm. I was just about to move out, by the way, folks. I'm not like one of these people, like 52, and I'm living with my phone. <laughs> no, I, I, I moved out shortly thereafter with uh, a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Yes, a different girl. So, so I gave her a number, 
and the phone rings. My dad goes, who the fuck is that? Because mm. I'm talking to her briefly. She sounds stoned. Yeah, of course. He goes, I got to talk to you. This girl sounds like a junkie. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I just met her. And, and from what you stole me in some other stories, your father would have known, right? <laughs> yeah, my father would have known. Uh-huh. Um, and and <laughs> so... Yes, I know it's a digression, but no, it was. No, that's New York was pretty crazy. That's actually a good, good digression because yeah, I've had some of those experiences myself, and I'm younger than you, but still, same thing. You know, we're in a leather jacket. Girl comes up to you and tries to pick you up someplace, and always it's like, oh fuck, she's a junkie. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it sounds it. so good. Like, wow, really hot look. Yeah, uh-huh. hey, you want to yep. talk to me? Although, same period, this beautiful blue-eyed girl, also on the train. For a while, some I was telling this story to my like lady friends that I worked with. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you won't believe what happened yesterday. I like, I did meet another beautiful blue-eyed young lady on the train who like nailed me. She was like, "Hi," and we talked all the way to Brooklyn. Gave me her number. Called about three days later. I bought a stereo system. Do you know how to hook it up? <laughs> I'm like, um, uh, yes, yes. I <laughs> Yeah, I was like, yes, yes, I remember you. And she only lived about a 15-minute walk. Okay. Bensonhurst, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, she lived with a roommate. And uh, I'm thinking, what does she look like? What does she look like? <laughs> and so I go there, and it was her. I was mm-hmm. I was good memory. And she goes, I remember when we met on the train, you said you liked Jack Daniels. I'm like, should I say that? <laughs> she, I bought you a bottle. I'm like, well, let me hook this. <laughs> let me hook this up first. Like you didn't know that was a pickup line. She didn't care about hooking the thing up. <laughs> so I, I hooked up her, her brand new stereo system, and it worked. Mm-hmm. And made sure I just sipped. You know, you gotta sip, JD. You know? Yeah, no, that's for sure. So we fucked until the lights came. You know, it was morning. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I went back home. Mm-hmm. About uh, eight o'clock, I called in sick. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And my father was going to work, and he said, where are you? This is before cell phones. We just had pagers back then, maybe? Yeah. And I'm like, I met this girl. He goes, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> really? And actually, I, I took her to a wedding, and then I'm going to get to our show, folks. <laughs> you guys love the dirty stuff. Of course. I said, I really like this girl, Dad. I'm going to, you know, uh. His wife's brother was getting married. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I didn't have money for a suit. Somebody had the same frame as me, lent me a suit. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, you want to go to a wedding? She got trashed. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, yeah, I can expect it, but still. <laughs> we came back to my, my my father's place. He was living with this lady. Yeah. And not my mom. And yeah, no, I get it. She sat on the couch in the living room and passed out. Yeah. He said, what are you going to do about this? I said, I'm going to bring it to my room. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, no, no, no. She woke up, folks. No, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I, you know, I, got, I had to end. No, she woke up. She, I took her to the bathroom. She woke up. I took her to the bathroom. She, it was, I liked her, but my best friend screwed it up. Yeah, well, that happens a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I got so many stories, at least, you know, if it's not personally, then definitely from, you know, friends in there, like cousins even, taking girls from them and, you know, vice versa. No, he didn't take her. Yeah. Oh, what happened? My best friend 
said, you really like this girl, huh? I said, I want you to meet her. Yeah. So he says, invite her over to your place. So my uh, my father and his, his lady friend were not coming in until very late. Mm-hmm. He said, hey, we'll, we'll get some food. My buddy's here. Bring your roommate. Mm-hmm. And her roommate was this busty girl wearing glasses. I'm like, if I wasn't seeing that girl. <laughs> uh, and, she, and she was like a brainiac, but she was hot. Yeah, yeah, best guy. So uh, my friend's a very smart guy. Um, he's also very stupid. <laughs> yeah. Me and my girlfriend go to my room. Yeah. And I assume these guys are in the living room. They go to my my father's room. Oh, okay. So at some point, I'm like, hey, we got to go. It's the middle of the night. I don't know when these guys are coming back. I caught hell the next day because my father said, did you use my bedroom? Why would you? You have your own bedroom. Yeah. Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So when we went back to their place, he never called her her roommate again. Ah, there you go. Okay. And I said, dude, that's wrong. That girl really likes you. And you did whatever you did with her. And (laughs) so the girl didn't want to talk to me anymore. Right. Right. My girlfriend broke it up with me. But then, like, a couple of days later, like, I miss you. I'm like, you know what? You break up with me. Fuck. Yeah. So, you know. I had, uh, well, actually, you know who it was? It was the guy that died recently, the, the rival guitarist who was a friend of mine. Yes. And they had this one girl. Well, nobody knows who the hell it is. I'll say Betty Ann was her name. And she, I thought she was fucking hot. He came around with her. And that was like, you know, she was going with him at the time. And, you know, back then in the 80s, got the big hair, you know, a metal girl, you know, the hot leg, the leather skirt with the little chains all, around it. We all had great hair. I even oh, had yeah. <laughs> uh, You know, she was fucking stunning, right? Really hot Italian okay. girl. Well, anyway, God knows what the hell the deal was there because she ended up going getting, I mean, not, I don't think it was on their half. I think they were just kind of like, I don't know, taking her. She kept jumping from guy to guy. She got passed around three guys in the circle from him to his cousin, to this other guy that they're hanging around, who was, uh, well, okay, no, he wasn't, all right, he was kind of like, uh, I think a guy that's like a couch jumper, I mean, he did have a place, but he yeah. wound up like, he actually lived in this guy's closet for a while, he had this little tiny, like, broom closet, and it was a small apartment, you can't even picture, it's like, you can almost have to stand up in there, somehow this guy was living in that for like, I don't know, six months or something, and he hooked up with this girl, and they started, this was going into like, you know, 89, when it was bands like Circus or Power and stuff like that were around, Zodiac, Mind Warp, and the whole junkie thing started up, you know, Guns N' Roses and all that. So somehow the two of them were like needle popping, and she wound up with this guy, and they wound up living at, down the street from him, at this other fellow that was in the circle that was just like a crazy guy, literally crazy, that they would hang around for laughs. Uh <laughs> He went up living in his basement, and I remember one time he came back and he's yelling like, "Yeah, you know, Betty Ann and uh, Don here are living down in the basement, and like they're not paying me rent. You know what they gave me? I says, you know, you got to pay him some money. He's like, he gave me a fucking peanut butter and jelly sandwich he made. That guy was a piece of work. I got so many stories. There's one time that somebody, I, I don't know who's, it's probably my buddy who I'm talking about, is gone, uh, invited some dealers over. 
<laughs> while they're having a party. And the guy's coming, and it's like, who the fuck's this guy in my kitchen making waffles? He comes in, he's got like a friend with him, I guess, like, you know, for a bodyguard, where's this big fat guy? And the guy went in there, busted in this guy's place, I guess, you know, wandering around through the cabinets, and made up waffles for himself. We should consider a show like, Horror stories from growing oh, yeah. up in the eighties. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> There's oh so God. many. But anyway, yeah, you just remind me all the shit talk about this girl thing, especially with this. You know, stuff comes back to you when you. First of all, who do you talk to this about? Exactly right. I used to talk with this stuff sometimes with uh, I have, on that level, but I this... have two very close friends. Well, three. You're one of them. Yeah. I have two other guys, and we don't talk about this stuff. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Who are you going to talk to, man? You know, really? And so, especially nowadays that everything's kind of changed, the mores and everything's like, it sounds all very, very off-color and questionable. Like, what the yes. hell? How did that, that happen? What, evil part of this? Like, oh, yeah, well. <laughs> well even mongering, you know, like, yeah. talk about folks. I don't talk to that much. <laughs> Who am I going to talk to that about? Yeah. And I occasionally bring it up to one of my close friends, and then I find out he's been doing the same thing. Of course. <laughs> but he doesn't go. I don't. I never go into details. Too salacious. But anyway. Um, anyway, uh, that's all the start of this show. <laughs> <laughs> usually I'll put this stuff at the end, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, usually you put this stuff at the end, but hey. Hey, oh, you love a show, right? That's it. And we're talking about 70s New York and the, the gritty city. So here you go. Here's some stories from the gritty city. Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> 70s up to 82, pretty much. Okay, so our first film is... Actually, remind me sometime, I'll tell you a funny New York City story, because uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember the band Spread Eagle. <laughs> They were one of the sleaziest, uh, you know, I don't know what to even call them. They weren't, they were, they weren't glam metal. They were like, um, like I said, the Guns N' Roses junkie rock stuff. They were good, but they're actually really good. But yeah, and there's a lot of drugs and a lot of like. <laughs> well, anyway, by this guy I was talking about and his cousin and another friend of mine who like used to run D and D stuff, believe it or not, and my drummer were all in on this thing where they picked up this groupie of the band and her friend, who were both, like, you know, skanky, whatever the hell's, and <laughs> actually this one I'm talking about was a Latina, and they all screwed her. And it turns out she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to, uh, I was with the entire band of Spread Eagle at the same time. <laughs> like, oh. and, and, and when she, like, was getting off, supposedly, she'd be like, yelling, oh, Diablo, Diablo. So, actually, so somebody recently mentioned Spread Eagle or taking a picture of somebody from Spread Eagle. I'm like, yeah, ask him about El, El Diablo. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there's, there's some good stories in there. I'm only like skimming over the surface, obviously. So anyway, first one we're going to cover tonight, Deadly Hero. Bizarre little picture that could only hail from the early 70s. TV director Ivan Nagy, whose only notable credit was the pretty terrible Captain America 2 with Christopher Lee and Red Brown, was more notable for his sex life. He was married to smoking hot Frank Sinatra ex Irene Sue of our Elvis shows Paradise Hawaiian Style and our Blaxploitation shows Three the Hard Way and Hot Potato. Not to mention the still unreleased Judge D and the Monastery Murders. Somebody needs to get on that one already. That was great. Nailed for being a bookie and banging, quote, Hollywood madam Heidi Fleiss gives us this claustrophobic and very, very authentically 70s cross between a social issues film, a home invasion film, cop film, and a definite slasher vibe. 
sort of pretty but oddly late middle-aged looking TV bit player, Diane Williams, and she spells her name wrong, who, believe it or not, was in her early 30s despite looking almost 20 years older, is the cellist, kindergarten music teacher, and conductor-slash-composer of some very dissonant, avant-garde, heavy-rock, hippie, off-Broadway thing. Think across between Godspell and Be Black Baby from our Brian De Palma show's Hi Mom. For some unknown reason, James Earl Jones from our Richard Burton show's Exorcist 2, Blood Tide from my interview with Nico Mastarakis over at Third Eye Cinema, our Canon film shows Aaron Corman in Last City of Gold, and our Eddie Murphy and Wesley Snipes shows Coming to America films, Ina Dashiki attends this theatrical masterwork and follows her home, jumping her in Central Park and forcing her to take him home. Yeah, real smart lady. He proceeds to terrorize her, but strangely falls short of raping her, at least on screen, because the, the script's a little ambiguous about this whole thing, and does weird stuff like slow dancing with her and reciting poetry in Shakespeare, despite the usual be careful and answer that phone call and literal down-on-the-floor ass-up, knife-to-the-throat home invasion abuse bullshit. He makes some vague phone call to the Navy. Somehow he expects a big cash-in over this. I don't know. It doesn't make any real sense. Until the nosy neighbor on the other end of the aforementioned phone call brings the cops. Despite not really making any threatening moves, blowhard racist pig Don Murray, whose only notable credit was the ridiculous I'm obsessed with you so I'm going to burn down your house, Brooke Shields stinker, endless love, actually blows him away. Murray, despite being busted down a few pegs in the precinct for, you know, being a fucking racist, is finagling his way up by kissing up to a scummy Republican mayoral candidate who makes him the focus of his law and order campaign when he's given a commendation for gunning Jones down. But when Williams changes her story to tell the truth about what went down, he loses everything and goes from trying to schmooze her into revoking her new statement to paying some fat schmuck to put a scare into her by nearly running her down the street, and the guy's such a shitty driver he winds up hitting parked cars and killing random passerby to luring both the fat slob and her out to some abandoned slaughterhouse with his own ramshackle pet cemetery, believe it or not, killing them and coating the bodies with lime. Of course, our heroine manages to get away by stabbing him with the stand on her cello. Both Jones and Murray are nice enough kidnappers to let her bring that giant instrument along when they kidnap her. What small guys? And he dies hanging over one of the stalls, still pointing his gun two-handed with a ridiculous look on his face for all credits. Well, that was, uh, interesting. You're not sure whether to be depressed or laugh. I have mixed feelings about this one, but that cramped everything up flights of stairs Manhattan thing is so strongly evoked. I can smell the stale air and mold, and the stalk and slash ending cross with some policier elements is right up my alley. But the weird hippie business, the home invasion thing, the idea that you're supposed to feel sorry for or like nutjob mugger slash ambiguous rapist slash home invader Jones just because Murray sucks just as much as him isn't just wrongheaded, it's fucking offensive. No surprise that Nagy was a bookie or involved with high-priced hooker Madame Fleiss. I just wonder how the hell he bagged Irene Sue, and why did Frank drop her after a few months around Tony Rome? We did a whole show on the man, and this never came up. So, what's your take? <sighs> well, this is one of the stranger, yeah. more unusual films we're discussing tonight. Believe Definitely. Not. Because um, AFCO Embassy released it, and I remember AFCO Embassy was one of the lower tier film distributors, producers. Mm-hmm. And Don Murray, who was on TV a lot. Yeah, he was a TV pit player. Yeah, but, you know, he was also in, uh, I believe, Ironside, mm-hmm. and uh, was for a few years. Uh, Police Story, things like that, TJ Hooker. You know, he, he made, he was on Knott's Landing for like four years. Not that I watched <laughs> Uh, but he was also on things like Twin Peaks. Every every strange person was on Twin Peaks. <laughs> but when Don Murray was younger, uh, around this time period, 
he, you know, he didn't have, he always seemed, he never seemed likable. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say he always seemed unlikable, but, but he, he never really seemed likable. You know, it's funny, the guy does so much television work. And by the way, Evan or Ivan Nagy, uh, the director, did a lot of TV work as well. So I'm sure the guy's chopping at the bit when he gets to do a feature film. Mm-hmm. Although there wasn't a lot of, uh, it's rated R, but there wasn't, you know, it's like just when you think it's going to go over the edge, it doesn't. Yes. It skirts the edge. Yeah, like I said, it's pretty obvious to me that, you know, Jones was raping her, but they don't really go there. It's like, okay, did it happen? Did it not happen? What's going on here? It doesn't make sense in the end. They don't really go there either because it got cut, or they don't really go there because James Earl Jones around this time period is still a formidable theatrical actor. Yes. He probably didn't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and and lending his talents to this low-budget movie, shall we say. And, you know, and Don Murray's a uh, familiar face on TV and really slumming in this. Maybe both of them said, you know, we shot this. Can we take it out? <laughs> <laughs> like a Joe Sarno picture. Yeah, like a Joe Sarno picture. It's funny how, you know, if everyone recalls after Joe Sarno passed, there's a pretty cool documentary out there, mostly with his, uh, his wife. Mm-hmm. And there's some footage of Joe on camera and you know and the wife is like oh joe never shot porn i'm like fuck the bullshit porn. Shot come on peggy that's horse shit everyone knows that <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a back in the day when i was uh blood times video folks mm-hmm. i had uh, several nice people in, in sweden mm-hmm. traders they were video vhs video mm-hmm. traders and you know and i had to have a, one of the one of the old expensive old region VHS, you know, yeah. uh, super VHS machines. Uh, they were expensive, too. And the guy was sent me home. I was like, yeah, Joe Sarno Joe shot this. And not just those films where he edited out, but he actually did pornos like Inside Little Orlani and Inside Sika and Inside the, I yeah, the that, third yeah. one. Well, Jennifer that, Wells. That was even later on, but when he was still in Sweden. Yeah, he was doing it there, too. He just edited those parts out. I see how people trying to retro-clean his legacy by saying, oh, no, those are people saying, like, uh, he didn't really shoot those. It was added on by the distributor. Fuck no. Me. Hell no. He even admitted himself. I remember seeing interviews with the guy when he was around, and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I edited because I wanted to catch the real orgasm or whatever, and mm. but I didn't want to show that on screen. So he would, like, yeah, probably really he just couldn't sell it that way except the porn theaters. So he would cut out the actual hardcore scenes but leave everything else in up and around it. So, you know, and they yeah, look good. They're good films, people, but... People took that as gospel. You know? yeah. So you got people writing books nowadays going like, well, he didn't make porno. Bullshit. Do, 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 do some research. Yeah, do research. <laughs> anyway, getting back to this, it looks like, to me, it's a nasty film. It always was a nasty yes. film. Even if the poster was ugly, but Afco Embassy was a low budget label. Sure, they They were like the crown or the canon of their time. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So it's it's a weird kind of picture, unlikable. Lots of familiar TV faces, probably because the director comes from working in television. Mm-hmm. Young Treat Williams is in this. Dick yes. Anthony Williams, who's a uh, now here's this is interesting, right? So Dick Anthony Williams was a uh, black political uh, motivationalist, poet, and actor, mm-hmm. and comedian. He wasn't one of the lost poets, was he? Yes. Uh, oh, he, he was. Might have. Nice. And um, uh, Debbie Harry's in this, too. And Where was that? I didn't catch that. 
Yeah, one one of the um, she sings in this too. Really? Yeah. Hmm, I'm trying to figure out. Oh, maybe she was part of the stage play. The, the crazy stage hippie play, thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So like this is like how far this is going going back, and the cinematographer's Andre Barkchowak. I can't pronounce the right? <laughs> no, he won Academy Awards for cinematography. Excuse me, cinematography years later. Mm-hmm. Music, Brad Fidel, T2, that great score from T2. Worked with Cameron a lot. So, I mean, there's a lot of legacy points here, but is it a good movie? No, it's actually a very unlikable film. Yeah. And it touches on what we've been discussing the grime and dirt of New York City at the time. Yeah, it's very dark and ambiguous, I'll say that. And it's, I've always been uncomfortable with it. But there's things about it that, like, at least are up my alley. I won't say I like it, but it's like, okay, there's parts that work, and other parts are like, ooh. <laughs> you know? so, yeah, it's like, ooh, and you could imagine if they left in what they possibly may have cut out. Yeah, or at least what they're implying. Yeah. So, next up, similar film in some ways, Report to the Commissioner. A Milton Castellus, whose only other film of note was the Liv Ullman Cougar drama 40 Carats two years prior, and whose most notable credit was chasing students from his method-style acting classes by trying to recruit suckers into the Scientology cult, seriously, gives us this typically grim early 70s police drama, strangely filled with future names like Yafit Kato over at Sandra Bullock shows 2FYC, or Steve McQueen shows Thomas Crown Affair, or Trio of Bond shows Live and Let Die, or Pam Greer and Blaxploitation shows Friday Foster, and our Blaxploitation shows Bone, across 110th Street and Truck Turner, who'd paradoxically also go on to be a mega-fucking QAnon crazy while supporting BLM, if you can rationalize that. <laughs> Richard Gere of our Jennifer Lopez shield, Shall We Dance? Mel himself, Vic Tabak of Bullet and Papillon from our Steve McQueen show. William Devane of Family Plot in the Dark. Bob Balaban of our Tony Perkins and Rancher Benjamin shows Catch-22. And our Close Ken Encounters. Ru- right, and our Ken Russell shows Altered States. And the Don Johnson vs. MAGA Opus Magnus, Dead Bang. And Dana Elkar of our Tony Curtis shows The Boston Strangler. Or Oliver Reed shows Condor Man. And our Klaus Kinski shows Buddy Buddy, which, again, is still unreleased. Guys, you got to start releasing this stuff already before the format goes away. <laughs> Perennial and youthfully balding hapless hippie Michael Moriarty who'd essay much of the same role in horrifically depressing fare like My Old Man's Place, Hickey and Boggs, The Last Detail, and Larry Cohen's Q in the Stuff, not to mention our full moon picture shows Troll, is the hapless milquetoast hippie of a rookie cop, more or less forced into the job by his father after his older brother went down in Nam. He takes a ton of shit from the hard-edged racist squad, inclusive of the aforementioned Kato, who's probably the worst of the lot. He notices the hot hippie chick, Susan Blakely of the Towering Inferno, and the highly entertaining Concord Airport 79, reviewed over at thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com, hanging with a bunch of dealers, but it's poo-pooed by Kato, who says she's just another junkie whore, literally. Of course, she's actually an undercover cop who winds up shacking up with and banging some scummy black pimp and gunrunner to shut down the operation. To bolster her deep cover, the department puts out a missing persons on her. She claims to be a runaway as part of her cover and makes the mistake of assigning this overly strident, naive rookie to the case. Naturally, he tails her successfully and blows the entire operation, getting her killed and starting a chase that endangers an entire crowded department store, which ends in Moriarty and the pimp trapped in an elevator Mexican standoff. It's longer and sweatier than Delon and Bronson's bank vault scene in our Charles Bronson and French crime show's Farewell Friend, though it's not very homoerotic this time. There's a lot of talk about shitting yourself and not being able to breathe, so you get the picture. Eventually, the pimp is taken out, and Moriarty is arrested for effectively murdering Blakely, while the department tries to figure out a way to save face with the media. They decide to exonerate the kid in the end, but he's already hanged himself in his cell. Roll credits. 
this is the way I remember the 70s. <laughs> bleak, bleak, gray, overcast, smoke-filled, dingy, and relentlessly dark. This isn't the lovably sleazy New York City of stuff like Bill Lustig's Maniac, Fulch's New York Ripper, yeah. or many of the other films we've been discussing tonight. It's an oppressive hellhole filled with no-hopers on their way down, much like our Al Pacino show's Panic in Needle Park. It's hard to say, I like this film, but it certainly struck a chord and brought back some vibrant childhood memories. And if you're looking for over-the-top method acting, this one is full of it. <laughs> Cotto's insufferable, even when he tries to reverse gears and shows some multi-layered nuance towards the end, talking to the pimp during the standoff. And Moriar is a fucking idiot, and so obsequious he's downright squirmy. Blakely just comes off as cheap and amoral. Nobody comes out of this one looking good. I'm actually flashing on a porno my father had inside Little Laura Lanning. If you've seen that very dingy New York set opus, you know what to expect here just without the welcome sex to make it more palatable. But it is worth a watch. If I want to set some of that vintage nostalgia straight with a main line of realism, which is really what it was like back in those days. It's funny, uh, this director, I used to work with a guy, this director tried to make a... Uh, low, low, low budget kung fu movies. <laughs> and I used to work with a guy who was, uh, he sort of looked like De Niro okay. with silver hair and uh, premature silver hair. <laughs> and uh, this guy was best friends with Ed o. Ross, the uh, heavy back in the day. Oh, yeah. Didn't you get in a play with him? Yeah. Did, uh, yeah an Animal yeah, House knockoff? I got play with him, yes. Yeah. And um, so well, both these guys, actually, the other guy wrote it. And uh, so Milton Katsalas, Yes, however you pronounce his name. He, had, he tried to put his hands in everything, and it's probably the best thing he's ever done, and that's Thank saying you. a lot. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of movie, like... You need a shower afterwards. You do. You know, if, if, if you want to think of a movie where Yafet Koto, uh, way before Alien, which is like, you know, like six, seven years later... Is a racist prick. It's a racist prick. He's bad. Susan Blakely, before she did that spread eagle thing for, uh, was it Capone? Yeah, yeah, I think it was Capone. It was, it's quite legendary, folks. What is he talking she's, about? She's a good-looking woman. They released Capone with Ben Gazzara. She was the girlfriend of Capone. Mm -hmm. They shot it, and they kept it in. And it, it's, it's, it's like the, what, Sharon Stone, right? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, Brisk and, uh, Basic Instinct, yeah. Uh, Susan Blakely's in bed with Capone and takes one leg and swings. Instead of swinging it over, instead of cutting, he's like, hello. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's Tony King. Tony King's in this. And Tony King would have a long, fruitful career working in the Philippines as, like, the black guy. <laughs> and all these... Um, and all these uh, With this uh, Corman shot once? Yeah, and all those sci-fi things. Yep. All, Albert Pyun. <laughs> and all those war films. I like the Warbeck ones. And uh, who was the yeah, guy that was on The Professionals that wound up in there? She's uh, not Shaw, the other fellow that was in The Professionals. That Everybody said he couldn't really act. <laughs> he went up to all those Vietnam movies in the Philippines. Yeah, Tony King was fine, though. You know, fine. Danny Elkar, people remember from TV. Bob Bellavan, we mentioned. Mm -hmm. William Devane, you mentioned. Young Richard Gere, Vic Tabak, you mentioned. But you know what? Truth be told, this is a very seedy film. Yes. And, and it, it really... It really... touches upon things we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. No, no, not, not the girls and stuff. 
No, it touches upon things we, 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 we spoke of earlier, that New York was a very weird place mm -hmm. back in this time period. That's for sure. And, and things like uh, the poster was very telling, too. No one knew she was the undercover cop, including the detective who killed her. And, you know, this was just the beginning of Michael Moriarty's... Um, Questionable career? <laughs> no, career as a, a weirdo. Yeah, as, as a sycophant, a weirdo, a freak, whatever. Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very strange movie. Yeah. I couldn't believe... You wanted to watch it, so I had to watch it. For like, like, <laughs> I didn't like this movie when I started years ago. But you know what? Yeah, I actually like Deadly Hero better, but yeah. <laughs> when, when I was going to the movies... The, you know, actual movie theaters back in the day. Mm -hmm. This was a trailer you often see. Yeah. Report to the commissioner. Maybe PG. I was like, how the fuck is anything really no GP? Mm -hmm. this, this may be in the GP days or whatever it was before they, you know, re turn around and say, oh, it's rated R. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be rated R. But the thing is, yeah, you're right. Both of these films are kind of really questionable to me even. But I was like, well, you know, if we're talking about this kind of gritty New York captured oh, yeah. on film, this is it. Those are definitely yeah. yeah. So next up, French Connection. Yowza. Now, this is a film to reckon with. A surprisingly silent film. There's so little dialogue here, you'd be shocked. So much of this is long silences and almost Antonioni-esque establishing shots. Think Melville, but with that vibrantly dingy 70s New York City vibe. An unlikable, grubby-looking, old-school, noir-esque cop, Gene Hackman of Prime Cut, Young Frankenstein, and the Superman films, and his far more likable, if mostly quiet and acquiescent partner, Roy Scheider, of Del Tenney's Cursed Living Corpse, or Donald Sutherland shows Clute, The Seven Ups, Last Embrace, and the Jaws films, stumble across an unlikely conspiracy to smuggle a shit-ton of heroin into the city from Marseille. Not because they have a tip-off, but just because they happen to notice neighborhood deli owner Tony Lobianco of the 7-Ups, Serpico, and Doris Wishman's Sex Pearls of Porlette, and his hot Italian wife, the very Jewish Arlene Farber, of films like I Drink Your Blood, Female Animal, and Something Weird's Two Girls for a Madman, whining and dining some made men while out boozing it up. Telling them, they start piecing together more connections and bigger suspects until they find the source. Fernando Rey of our Burt Reynolds show's Navajo Joe, Corbucci's Compañeros, Castellari's Cold Eyes of Fear and High Crime, and Buñuel's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois and That Obscure Object of Desire. There's the usual great 70s car chase through the crowded city streets, racing an elevated train. Hackman and Scheider manage to impound the car of a famous French actor who Ray uses an unsuspecting drug mule. And there's a weird extended denouement that feels very much like a French crime film, where they strip the car down to the rocker arms, yeah. buy dozens of bags of pure shit, and then just replace it and return the car so that they can intercept the big handoff and gun everyone down. I don't know, I really thought they would have replaced the drugs with Comet or something. But by American crime film standards, this one is completely completely bizarre and stands out from the crowd by being you guessed it extremely french i'm thinking not only melville but our michael Caine shows get carter with all the long loving views of dingy down market locale and unsavory people with ridiculously long stretches sounds dialogue as a fan of this stuff i mean hell we just did a show on french crime films i thought this was fantastic but if you're more of a fan of like the dirty harry films or bullet much less bronson you wonder what the fuss was all about here it's too measured in pace and too quiet Hackman always comes off like a complete asshole. I'm not sure everyone loves him so much. You could say the same of Brando, but he was an even bigger dickhead. His rumpled jacket and crushed bums hat seem strangely apropos, leaving even the silent, pug-faced mug Roy Scheider coming off as a far more likable potential lead by comparison. Not that he's ever a bad mind, but he's even more subdued than Donald Sutherland. 
you don't really think dynamic lead and Rush Scheider in the same sentence. The rest of the cast is pretty forgettable, bar the pretty damn stunning Farber, who's sort of an early 70s Fran Drescher type, but what a film it is. Director William Friedkin was pretty spotty, with great films like this and our Al Pacino shows cruising, offset by overpraised yawn fests like The Exorcist and the perfectly hard half-assed Fitzcarraldo that was Saucer. Oh god, I tried to watch that again recently. What a piece of shit. The only other notable credit in this filmography is The Guardian, which was okay, but seriously? How can you be so good and then so dicey at the exact same time? I don't get it. But this is really a winner. What's your take? Well, I'm not going to debate Friedkin with you, but Eddie Egan, who plays the captain in this film, Captain Walt Simonson, was actually Jimmy Popeye Doyle. Really? The, the, the real-life real person? The real person that this that Gene Hackman plays. So mm-hmm. Eddie Egan, uh, the guy with the uh, short Irish-looking actor, with the, yeah. um, you know, he, he's got that great voice. He's like, Jimmy, Jimmy, listen to me, Jimmy. <laughs> no. You yeah. know what I'm saying, right? I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah. He was, he's Jimmy Popeye Doyle. And Eddie Egan actually had a little career in, in movies and TV, TV shows as a cop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's a natural. The guy's a fucking natural. So was Sonny Grosso. Sonny Grosso, he was the FBI, FBI agent that comes up toward the end of the movie, gets shot. He was the guy that was Buddy Russo that Roy Scheider played. Mm-hmm. So they had two of the guys that were the real guys in the French Connection that actually it was a real thing, mm-hmm. playing roles in this movie. Eddie Egan was a natural actor, so, you know, good for him. I, you know, Gene Hackman, it comes and goes, He, but he's done some, uh, you know, you might disagree with me, he's, he's done some amazing work over the years, like the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Where did that come from? That one, Prime Cut, and this one, I really like, okay, yeah, Prime he's good. Cut, yeah. yeah, Prime Cut, this one, there's a couple other things, you know, because, uh, Unforgiven, where did that come from? But again, that's the one where he's an asshole, because that, that's the thing. He really comes off like, like Brando. You know, it's like, what's wrong with this guy? How's that going so popular? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but the thing is, like, after having us and Gene Hackman on, on screen in a couple of years, he, he did this thing, a uh, bunch of, you know, a lot of people were doing these, uh, go back to Nam and get people. You remember that movie he did? I forgot the title of it. It was okay. Red Brown was in that, I think. It was okay. But then, you know, then Gene Hackman, like, shows up in, like, this uh, fucking crazy stuff. And then, <laughs> then, then he wakes up, which is what Brando didn't do. Right. Brando didn't give a fuck. Yep. After Apocalypse Now, Brando was done. Yep, that's true. But this movie, this movie, Hackman's, like, brilliant. And, and Roy Scheider, as his quiet partner... He's got so much good stuff, so much good lines. I like Roy Scheider. It's just like, I'm saying he comes off so much better than Hackman just because he's not an asshole. He's like a, a better actor in that way, in that Roy respect. Scheider, Roy Scheider is one of the most... Uh, but he's so understated. He's like Donald Sutherland, but even more so. Like You never think like, oh, dynamic lead, Roy Scheider. No, that doesn't happen. No, no, yeah, exactly, exactly. Even, I know it's a Spielberg movie, you don't like him, Jaws. Yeah, Roy, no. Scheider, Roy Scheider owns that. Roy Scheider's over the top in that movie, though. But yes, you're right. He owns it. He owns it, though. And then, years later... I actually like that movie, by the way. That's my exception to the Spielberg movies. <laughs> when Roy did all that jazz for Bob Fosse. Oh, the Fosse. Bob Fosse, right. That was great. <laughs> okay, again, he's supposed to be an asshole because Bob Fosse was an asshole. You know, Bob Fosse directed that fucking thing? What an ego. Yes. What an ego. He's directing the hate geography about himself. I mean, come on. Right, right, yeah, Bob Fosse directs an autobiography about himself as a chain smoker, nut job, 
gigantic, whatever. But, and he has rotting. Yeah, it could have led to his cancer, too. Because mm-hmm. I heard that Bob Fosse worked him really, really, really hard in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then we got Tony Lobianco. Bob Fosse is known for working everybody really hard. That's part of the problem. <laughs> uh, but that's why he did genius art sometimes in the theater. This, this movie is so good. And you know, the funny thing is, a lot of people thought, that Lalo Schiffen did no, it was Don Ellis, Jasmine's musician Don Ellis. Oh yeah, that's right. Wasn't he? A, he's, he's a trumpeter, jazz guy. Yeah. Yeah. And the score is percussive, and then it's like, and then it's quiet. It's like really cool. And you know, why do I like this movie so much? Oh, I love it's it. Like, <laughs> it's so it's New York. So, it's so New York. It's got such ridiculous shit that works. It's so New York. It shits graffiti. <laughs> So, so Gene Hackman, he's just slump, mm-hmm. right? It's just, it's just slumo. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who's attracted to this guy? He meets a girl on a bicycle. She's a hippie chick. So yeah, and he fucks her. I'm like, what the hell? Oh, and, she, and the best part is she chains him up. She's like, she's kinky, so she uses his own handcuffs and like chains him to the bed. <laughs> well, you know what? It was the seventies. Yeah, it was great. But, it was great. And then, and then, but the next day, the sniper guy is picking off people. The sniper guy's stupid because he shoots people. Yeah, randomly. Yes, randomly, right. And it leads to one of the best and most ridiculous car chases ever. I love that car chase. You know, everybody goes about bullets. I live that neighborhood. That's called the Manhattan Project. And it's in Bensonhurst. <laughs> oh, Manhattan Project. I didn't know you were in Bensonhurst. I thought you were just Coney Island and, you know. <laughs> and everywhere. Shit. <laughs> and everywhere and nowhere, man. No, I, I know that. I went to school at Lafayette High School. Welcome back. <laughs> you know. Uh, Lafayette High School, yeah. Welcome Back High School. That's what yeah. It's like three blocks from there. <laughs> I get off at that train station that Gene Hackman walked down. Mm-hmm. Up. So, so the guy's shooting people, including baby carriages. Fuck, yes. how bad can you be? Yep, he shot a fucking baby, that's right. <laughs> and then Gene is chasing him in like a stolen car. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy's following, and he's looking up, and he's following the, uh, then it was the B train. He's following the B train, and, and, you know, the guy's fucking losing his shit. It's Marcel Busufi. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, don't shoot random strangers. <laughs> yep. And, you know, and Fernando Ray, who worked with everybody from Just Franco to, like, yep. the, the bastards of French cinema. Wasn't he in, like, crap, like, 10,000 cats or 90,000 cats? Like, he's, like, everywhere. He worked, he, worked, he worked for, yeah. like, Marcel Lufus, I believe. You know, all yep. the greats. Yep. He's very quiet, and he's very, you know, he's a Frenchman, and he's very quiet, and he's very, you know, every, all this stuff is translated, and, you know, it's just like, this is what I want happening. But, you know, Roy Scheider is the anchor of this film. I love he really is. the yeah. scenes where it's like they're doing a stakeout, one of many, and it's very early in the morning. They've been there all night. You want some coffee? <laughs> you know, and Gene, Gene Hackman never took a sleep. Yep. He never went to sleep. Like, no, why do you want to get, get me a donut and coffee? Okay. He's like, what can I have? Like, what are we doing? You know? <laughs> such a, Roy Scheider was such a naturalistic actor. Yes. It, 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 it just, I love this movie. I love this movie. Well, you know what it was? He wasn't an actor first. He was like my father. He was an amateur boxer. Yes. That's why his nose is kind of messed up. Well, yeah, broken. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it happens, you know. Cauliflower ears. My father got nosebleeds, you know. Yeesh. Yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> that's why you don't have your box. He can talk me some shit, but you know, it's just like, no, nah, you don't want to do this. We're going to mention the sequel later? <laughs> yeah, we're going to do it right now, actually, because it's oh. connected. So, French Connection 2. Oh, my 
my God, what a difference a director makes. After that wonderfully evocative pant to early 70s New York City sleaze that was the French Connection, some fucking idiot got the idea to switch from William Friedkin to John Frankenheimer, dump Scheider, and set the entire film in France instead of Manhattan. What a fucking mistake. Frankenheimer, who delivered a Frank Sinatra show's terse and timely tale of Republican fifth columnists attempting to take the White House and turn America into a totalitarian state, the Manchurian candidate, and the grubby, nearly unwatchably inesthetic code to existential midlife crisis and the fetishization of plastic surgery that is our Rock Hudson show seconds, terrorist opus Black Sunday, top-tier echo horror prophecy, and the much-mentioned Don John vs. Maggot Republicans opus Dead Bang totally loses it here. Four years after the events of the original, Hackman is sent to France to track down Fernando Rey, who apparently escaped that final gunshot to close the original somehow. So there's already like a leap of logic here, but okay. He proceeds to act like a grade-A asshole ugly American among the French, proving every stereotype about U.S. travelers along the way. What a complete dick. Hackman, who it's literally impossible to feel any sympathy for, winds up kidnapped by Rey and dosed with horse until he's a junkie himself. Think the sinful dwarf, but without any of the sex and sleaze aspects to make this even vague stretch appealing. Finally, Ray megadoses Hackman and dumps him on the steps of police headquarters as a statement. We waste even more time watching him go cold turkey. Now you're like 45 minutes into the film or more. Then he leads a raid which goes sideways, and he gets blamed for it and told to get the fuck out of France. He refuses, chases Ray again, who gets away again, only to be shot in the head in the final scene. Uh, yay? Who the fuck greenlit this one? Do we even need a sequel to the original? That ending wrapped things up pretty tightly. There was no call for a sequel. I swear, I don't get Frankenheimer. Like freaking, he has a few very good and generally message-statement-driven movies in his filmography. What was the message here? Don't be a dick overseas? It's fun being strung out on junk? Isn't Hackman a shithead actor? What? It's detestable. Not only is it a must-avoid in and of itself, but it's an absolute blemish in the legacy of Freakin's highly estimable original. I don't get it. For some reason, critics seem to love it, but it's just awful. It's basically just a junkie film and an ugly American film. There's really no point to it otherwise. What's your take? I, I liked it better than you. It's not a great film, but Frankenheimer has a incredible career. He did some really good movies. Yeah, Seconds, The Train, Seven Days in May. Oh, my God, what a film. We, we should do a freaking show. Because, I'm sorry. We uh, could. A Frankenheimer show. Because Either one train, or both. <laughs> Seven Days in May is it's like one of my favorite films of all time. But then he's done weird things like 99 and 44, it's 100% Dead, which we mentioned <laughs> in the Richard Harris show. Yes. And, you know, in later years he's done weird stuff. But, so he's not like a hack. No, not at all. Hey, but this is one we, we I think we're good, you and I are going to disagree on because, yeah, there are things we do agree on, though, because, like, uh, oh, yeah. Jimmy Popeye Doyle, Gene Hackman's character, is total dick when he goes to France. Mm -hmm. he's, he's playing the same character from, like, five years before. So I figure it was released in 71, so they shot the uh, French Connection in 70. Mm -hmm. And he, he goes to France, he's still... Tracking down the lane, Shawnee of the Frog. Played well, by he shot at the end of the first film, mind. <laughs> yeah, but he disappeared. He disappeared. You shot him, but he wasn't there. Well, they closed the, the credits on that. You hear the gunshot and then the credits roll. So you assume that he was shot, and then they start showing you all the things that happened to all these people. Yeah, right, except him. Mm. So, so Gene Hackman shows up in Francis' racist bake. Yes. And uh, I, I think that was a mistake to amplify that. They, they, they should have pulled back on that a little bit. 
and the scene where he was trying to pick up those French girls and then attacking the French and then he buddies up with the bartender just because he's like throwing money at him and they walk home drunk but he's not like he's pals with him he's just like okay whatever I'll deal with this racist asshole from, from America yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. It just totally was weird the only guy in the movie who, who was an American that had any kind of thing was Ed Lauder who, who, whose main career was as like a supporting guy. He had a bigger role in this film uh, until he did the uh, Burt Reynolds' uh, Longest Yard. But, uh, and Ed Lauder is a good, good guy, a good actor. But this picture has so many problems. But I liked it because I thought, wow, once he start making Gene Hackman's character a drug addict. Oh, God. And it's so long. It takes up so much of the picture. It's the centerpiece, really. It's, it's the whole it's reason rough, for the picture. The lodge, it it's is. Rough, the you know, I give the guy credit for, like, doing that. And then he has to go through withdrawal. Mm -hmm. There's interesting things in this. I think this should have went through a few more drafts, mm -hmm. personally. But I, I don't dislike it as much as you do. Um, probably why we never saw French Connection 3. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> but, yeah, I... I I tell people to take a look at this because after the first film, if you want to see where the story goes, it's worth watching. So here's something much better. The Seven Ups. Yes. This one's interesting. There's a very direct connection between our Steve McQueen show's Bullet, the original and ridiculously superior French connection, and the Seven Ups. And it's not just that they're all very much of a piece, particularly between the French connection and this, but it was both produced and, for the only time in his entire career, directed by a Philip D'Antonio, who, you guessed it, produced all three films. He also brought not only Roy Scheider and Tony LoBianco, who co-starred The French Connection, but stunt coordinator and on-screen bit player Bill Hickman, whose only other film in time in front of the camera of note was the depressing Hickey and Boggs with I Spy's roofy rapist Bill Cosby and grouchy Robert Culp, to all three films. The guy's entire career outside of stunt work was literally one of those walk-on extra types who never get a line. He doesn't really speak much at all here either. But surprisingly enough, given all that, this is actually one of the best films discussed tonight, really capturing the bombed-out hellscape feel of New York in the 70s, arguably straight through Dinkins and the AIDS and crack epidemics that closed out the 80s and early 90s. This one is filled with familiar character actors like Scheider's old-school friend conformant Tony LoBianco, who had kicked off his career in a Doris Wishon film, seriously, Sex Perils of Paul Lepp, before going on to parts in Serpico, the D'Antonio films, our Sylvester Stallone shows Fist, our Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood shows City Heat, and our Wesley Snipes shows Boiling Point. Ubiquitous screen psycho Richard Lynch, whose dozens of notable characters include are Chuck Norris shows Invasion USA, Ruggiero Diodato's Cut and Run, The Sword and the Sorcerer, and our full moon picture shows Trancers 2 and Puppet Master 3, Stallone pal Joe Spinell, most notable for being Bill Lustig's infamous maniac, and being married to stunning if largely forgotten porn star Gene Jennings, who made walk-on roles in our Richard... Was, was he? Yes, he wow. was. For a bit, for a couple of years. Who may walk on roles in our Robert Mitchum show's Farewell, My Lovely, our Peter Fonda show's 92 in the Shade, our Arnold Schwarzenegger show's Stay Hungry, our Tony Perkins show's Winter Kills, our Al Pacino show's Cruising, and our Frank Sinatra show's The First Deadly Sin, plus our Stallone show's first two Rocky films and Nighthawks. So Spinell was busy. He's done a lot of stuff. And William Hickey and or Walking Corpse Look Like Victor Arnold of our <laughs> Flaxploitation shows Shaft, our Al Pacino shows Injustice for All, our Sinatra shows The First Daily Sin, and one of my favorite early 80s horror films, Wolfen. Scheider heads a team of cops working a bit outside procedure, whose bust generally results in convictions of seven years and up, hence the name. Naturally, they're treated with kick gloves for the latter and both watched and berated for the former, but, you know, you can't argue with the results. 
the craziest plot you've ever heard of ensues, where certifiable loon Richard Lynch and his pal Bill Hickman have been, wait for this one, kidnapping mafiosi and holding them for ransom. Talk about suicidal. Anyway, Shatter's mainline snitch to the mob is old neighborhood pal and school chump Lobianco, who turns out to be the idiot behind the whole thing. After some top-tier insane car chases, some crazy payoff and escape scenarios, the killing of a member of the team who infiltrates a mob funeral wearing a wire, and a nasty shootout at the dumpy and dangerously situated ramshackle home of Joe Spinelli, Shagger confronts Lobianco and says, you never know who's going to whisper what and who's ear about all this, and walks away. Damn! Roy Scheider, who, much like my father, was an East Coast amateur boxer, hence that famous and obviously busted nose, like I mentioned earlier, kicked off his career in one of the dullest of Del Tenney films, Curse of the Living Corpse. I love Del Tenney and Larry Buchanan films. I actually follow them together because they're such an overlapping style and cheap, jack, claustrophobic feel. But not that one. But managed to go on to star in several top-tier New York City-style cop films in the early 70s, from a Donald Sutherland show's Clute to his pair of films for D'Antonio, before lucking into the lead in the Jaws films and Freaking Saucer and a trio of latter-day neo-noir, The Last Embrace with Roger Moore, 52 Pickup, and Night Game. And like I said, while he's a decent actor, he's very much of the method school, and while prone to breaking the sudden rage-out freakouts out of Jimmy Dean, the guy who liked having gay guys stub out lit cigarettes on his chest, not the sausage salmon. And, <laughs> I, see a, I see a Roy Scheider show coming up, man. We could. But, uh, yes, that Jimmy Dean, not the sausage salesman, in that sense, at least. Uh, he, he manages, like Donald Southern, like I said, to come off largely overly subdued and cipher-esque in his roles, his latter rather over-the-top Jewish performances aside. He makes an excellent co-star and ensemble actor, but as a lead, something's kind of lacking. He just doesn't hold your attention or sympathy like a filmic lead must. He's a chorus voice and not a soloist. Even so, if you're going to check out one Roy Scheider film, fuck Jaws, this one is it. It's a great film. It's one of my favorites discussed tonight alongside The Freegan French Connection and Pelham 123. So, what's your take? I love this movie. Oh, yeah, it's great. I love this fucking movie, guys. I fucking love this movie. Yes, Louis Paul will say it again. I fucking love this movie. Same here. I kid you not, because, and Phil D. and Tony, producer, why didn't you make another film as a director? I the know. Guy's good. It was. Shit. It was very good. The beats, the, the editing, the action beats. I mean, he was a producer on French Connection, a couple other pictures. Mm-hmm. For some reason, he decided he wanted to, he wanted to direct this. Okay. And it's not the same character Roy was playing in the original French Connection. No. But like a an aberration of that, like a, a, a different character, but same, similar. The same kind of stuff, and the car chases are just as crazy, if not better. Oh, my God, the car chases. Yo, so uh, this comes up every couple of years. People post it. I, I get a memory. They say, what are the best car chase films? Oh, uh, God. Uh, car chase sequences in movies. Violet City, French Connection, this one, Freebie and the Bean, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but, you know, nothing tops this. Yeah. Nothing tops this. This is crazy. And it just so happened, not by choice, but by happenstance. I interviewed, co-interviewed Richard Lynch twice over a you know, six, seven, eight-year period. And it always came around to this. And it was like, can we talk about this? <laughs> and he was, he said it was nuts. He said it was crazy doing the car chase scene. Mm-hmm. You know, because they go all, they were on the uh, Henry Hudson Parkway. Yep. And they go all the way up to Poughkeepsie. Yep. Anybody, yeah, you, uh, you go up the uh, Palisades Parkway there, and I was like, oh, man. Palisades Parkway, after that. Yep. And for first, they go through Upper, upper, upper Hollow. Uh-huh. And, you know, that, just to block it out, just a crazy. 
And how does this thing end? He fucking makes a turn, and Roy slams into a truck yep. and ducks just in the You're lucky he did, otherwise we're in Jane Mansfield. <laughs> yeah, but he ducks in, in, in the nick of time, and he's like, he's still bloody. Uh-huh. He's still full of glass. And it's like, and but you know that last line where he talks to Tony Lopianco, who's playing a very similar sleazy fucking part mm-hmm. that he did in The French Connection, but with a little difference. It's great that, you know, they meet at the Verrazano Bridge. You remember yep, this, right? Sure. Yeah, which is another place I used to grow up and hang out. Mm-hmm. Tell stories about the Verrazano Bridge. <laughs> and, um, really, but you don't want to hear them. And <laughs> Don Ellis is back, too, during doing the score. This is another French connection. Connection. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. You know, he's, doing, <laughs> he's doing that very... Minimalist, syncopated, very percussive score. Syncopated, yeah. Syncopated, thank you. Syncopated score. And it's it's just like... Like, the guy, like, why don't we hear more Don Ellis? Like, this might actually get people to actually check out more Don Ellis stuff. Mm -hmm. You should. Yeah, that's good stuff. It's it's good stuff. Roy Scheider is like fucking... Yeah, okay, so... Roy's got the lead in this. It's the first film he's had to lead. And I think he, he owns this movie. He just runs with it. But yeah, this is like kind of a thing with that whole Serpico, which was like a year. That's about the same year. Probably wouldn't happen without pictures like this. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's an unheralded gem. Mm-hmm. That's just weird. Nobody really talks about it, but it's so good, especially if you like films like The French Connection or Serpico or you know any of the stuff we're talking about tonight. It's so good. It's so good. Like I said, I fucking love this movie. <laughs> yeah. Nah, same here. It was definitely one of the high points of the, the show. Mm. So next up is one that you had me watch, and I hadn't seen it for years, but I forgot. Freebie and the Bean. Bizarre, but laugh-out-loud, absurdist, hilarious at times. Cross between The In-Laws, The Blues Brothers, and a Marx Brothers movie. James Caan and Alan Arkin are a pair of obnoxious assholes who fight and pull weird jokes on each other like rival brothers. Or more to the point, a pair of queens flirting with each other throughout. And there's a whole gender-bender thing going on throughout, with a visit to a particularly absurd gay bar where drag queens mingle with the usual crowd and a bunch of guys in teeny tiny white undies wiggle and hump the air. All I can tell you is that if that's the lifestyle, I could never go gay. I was watching, I'm like, I was almost in horror, like, Wow, this is what they go for, huh? Uh, so, and when Jack Christian puts up a particularly homely woman on a park bench, only to find himself kidnapped at gunpoint by what turns out to be a Christopher Morley, a really skinny gay kid who had a whole career appearing in film and television as a female impersonator, it's pretty funny when Khan tells her to the ladies' room, only to get his ass kicked by what's quickly revealed to be the guy's ballet high-kicking skills. Essentially, it's supposed to be a buddy cop film, this time set in San Francisco rather than Manhattan, but with the same basic vibes. See also busting and police connection, which we'll be covering shortly, but with really, really dark, absurdist comedy overtones. The two of them aren't exactly good at their job and spend more time pulling practical jokes on each other, running through park fountains like they're in a rom-com, and all but tickling each other and rolling around in bed together. In fact, they're pretty fucking abrasive with the, quote, intended funny dialogue and banter between the two falling horribly flat throughout. The only reason to really stick with this one? The insane, absolutely insane car chases, shootouts, and mass chaos that follows in their wake time and time again. You know that bit where Jake and Elwood Blues drive through the crowded mall and the Blues Brothers? Yeah. How about those insane car chases where literal dozens of cars go flying through the air, colliding and flipping over, right? We talked this in our John Belushi show. 
Yeah, this is where they got the idea from. And in fact, Freebie and the Bean one-ups the later film in spades. I was stone-faced throughout a lot of the film, but when all this mass chaos and violence erupted, I was literally laughing out loud. And then it happens again and again. And again, they go flying off the freeway into some old folks' third-floor apartment while these people are laying in bed eating crackers, totally nonplussed by all this. And literally, the car's hanging in the wall, like sideways. They chase a baddie through a restaurant kitchen, which doesn't result in the usual, like, food fight-type messes, but they're actually, like, shooting down workers by accident. One girl's promptly showing nursing a gunshot wound in her ass, which is very clearly intended as a joke. They go the wrong way down a one-way street everywhere. Cars, people, everything's flying through the air. There's mass destruction. It's fucking hilarious. And you may feel guilty about laughing, but it's totally absurdist, like our Elliot Goldchill's Little Murders, but with a much lighter tone. Director Richard Rush's few credits sent around late 60s biker films, two starring Jack Nicholson, Hell's Angels on Wheels, The Savage Seven, and the best of hippie drug films, Psych Out. So this one seemed a bit of an anomaly for him. Khan started out in interesting, twisted films like Lady in a Cage and Curtis Harrington's Games before declining the populist nonsense like the Godfather films, our Burt Reynolds show silent movie and Rollerball. But arguably, and I have mixed feelings about it, but his best film outside this is probably Hide in Plain Sight, which was sort of a proto-raw deal, which we talked about in our Arnold Schwarzenegger show, that Khan had directed himself as well as starring in it. Alan Arkin was mainly known as a sort of irritated straight man-style comedian, somewhat in the vein of George Siegel, who he devoted an entire show to, but with less mugging or likability. In his non-comedic roles, he actually played rather sleazy, irredeemable villains like in Wait Until Dark, but he's probably best known for 70s black humor pictures Catch-22 from our Richard Benjamin and Tony Perkins shows, Little Murders from our Elliot Gould show, and one of my father's favorite comedies, The In-Laws, with Peter Falk and Ed Begley Jr., before cameoing in much dicier 90s fare like Edward Scissorhands, the Jerky Boys movie, and one of Mike Myers' better films, So I Married an Axe Murderer. The irritating and nasty Loretta Swit, mostly known for being horribly miscast, <laughs> mostly known for being horribly miscast as the sexpot distaff interest in the TV version of MASH, and I've covered the original film on our Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould shows, cameos as the much younger, I hesitate to say trophy wife, as she's no fucking prize, to Jack Crucian's overweight geriatric mobster. Jack Crucian's best role was as the pervert Satanist janitor and Satan's cheerleaders from a Satan and the 70s show, but he'd occasionally get bit parts in things like the Chevy Chase Carrie Fisher midget extravaganza under the rainbow, so you recognize his face right away. Alex Rocco, the frustrated DA, was a regular character actor in films like Boston Strangler, Detroit 9000, Three the Hard Way, and Cannibal Run 2 from a Tony Curtis. Oh, he had a great voice. He had a great voice, Alex Rocco. Yeah. From a Tony Curtis, Burt Reynolds, and exploitation shows, not to mention oddities like Blood Mania, Brute Core, and The Entity. And wasn't he in one film from our Jennifer Lopez show as well? We discovered him recently. I think so. Where yes. she was supposed to be Italian. I forget which one that was. He was the father. Yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Valerie Harper is best remembered as the sassy, fashionable Rhoda Morgenstern from the Mary Tyler Moore show and her own relatively long-running spin-off Rhoda. And she looks pretty damn hot here in a very small part as Alan Arkin's supposed Latina lady friend. Yes, believe it or not, they're both supposed to be in Spanish. I walked away with mixed feelings about this. I had zero sympathy, connection, or amusement from or towards Khan and Arkin, who are quite simply assholes here. But several surprise bursts of anarchy, much like a Marx Brothers or even a Buñuel film, left me spitting out my drink and laughing out loud, so I did really enjoy it in the end. What's your take? <laughs> well, Richard Rush, you didn't mention the, the one great film he did, which was uh, The Stuntman with uh, Steve Railsback and Peter O'Toole, which we covered, actually. So he's a bit of a 60s maverick filmmaker, you know, besides his biker films. So this is a weird movie. I always thought it was a weird movie, but 
you're right. Once they, you know, it seems like these two guys are fucking arguing and bickering all the time, but they're best friends. Yeah, and they're like taking with each other and chasing each other through fountains. It's almost like a rom-com, but it's like two guys, and they're like, they're nasty to each other, nasty to everybody. Well, yeah, you you got Alan being Alan. The funny thing was, it seemed like both these guys were directed to be themselves, in a way. In a way. Yeah, in a way. So you got Alan being Alan. It's like, well, well, don't tell me, don't tell me to be like, you know, I got to do this. And James Conn's like, hey, you know what? You know what? This is what you're fucking doing. You know, we're going we're gonna to do what I want you to do. And it's like, so they're adversaries and they're partners. But it's like every so often, the, it's like the Blues Brothers mm-hmm. first movie in 1980, they get themselves a ridiculous, ridiculous situations. Situations. And it's like, Oh, we're gonna go off the freeway like you said, end up in somebody's apartment, or like get these ridiculous car chases where major shit happens. And it's we're like, talking about like not just a couple of cars, we're talking about cars flying through the year and cars flying over, through dozens the air. of them. I got the feeling they didn't like each other, but I could have been wrong. It could it could have been just like, okay, Phoebe and the Bean is such a anomaly. It's like a weird movie in the. Uh, the whole jism, not that kind of jism, folks, <laughs> of, of like early 70s buddy cop pictures, because it, mm-hmm. it's kind of dark. Oh, very dark. Very and dark. I think it was actually kind of a counterculture standby, because a lot of people used to talk for me in the beam when I was younger, uh, you know, maybe because of the comedy, because it was such a dark, dark comedy, as well as just being a cop film. Well, yeah, you know, and, and it's, it's funny that Alan Arkin in his heyday really excelled at that kind of thing. You know, oh, yeah. When he did The In-Laws with Peter Falk. The In-Laws, Catch-22. I mean, he did a lot of films like that. Even in uh, Little Murders with Elliot Gould. Little Murders, yeah. Which uh, was kind of like this. The sensibility is the same. Alan Arkin, something else to put yep. on the list, maybe. You know, nope. Oh, yeah, we could do that. And uh, But no, it's just, I, I always wanted to talk about this movie. And it's funny, it never got a proper release. No, I think it got it, a Warner archive. A Warner archive burn, exactly. That's where I found it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I have, and and uh, it's a shame, really, because uh, now that he passed on, Alan mm-hmm. Arkin, uh, did James Conn die too? I thought he did recently. No, not as recently as Alan Arkin, but yeah, within yes, the last so couple of years. Both these guys are fucking dead. Come on, Warner Brothers, get your act together. You know? <laughs> Well, the problem is we're getting towards the you know, quote the end of the medium, so you're just getting quote, boutique labels putting stuff out. I bet the best you get is Kino, or maybe you get somebody like uh, if they think there's enough of a culty interest, like an Arrow. You know, but other than that, you know, most of these people well, don't care anymore. Yeah, I understand you, but if they can find some like 35 millimeter elements that are willing to boot it up, I was shocked to see uh, Madeline McDonough. Are you friends with her? Yeah. Post the other day, I don't have a Blu-ray player. What? All I have is a. Did you didn't see this? I didn't see that one. Everybody. How was, did you review her stuff? Everybody was <laughs> posting on this, including Tim Lucas. It's like I don't have a Blu-ray. All I have is a DVD player. I don't see the reason to upgrade. Like, hello, is this? Like Are you crazy? 82? Yeah, because I mean, I went for years and years. I have like most of my collection that I have is DVDs, but then I started collecting Blu-rays, and I've got a sizable collection I, of those I, as well. Said, I see no reason to go to Blu-ray. I see no reason to go 4K. Yeah, that was me like a decade ago. I mean, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and there's all these people responding like, well, I, it's possible she doesn't have any income. That's possible. Yeah. So I get it. 
you know, you can't afford this shit, and you can't afford to upgrade to the monitors that will that will show this properly. But it's a weird statement to make. Like you're one of the queen bees of uh, criticism, yeah, film criticism, and you're like, it's like, I have a VHS. <laughs> <laughs> what is a DVD? You know, yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, me personally, I think I that's one of the reasons that uh, Vinegar Syndrome kind of dropped me after a while is because, you know, I mentioned, like, well, what's the point of 4K? I don't really get it. It was just coming out at the time. And like, you know, the Blu-rays for the most part, especially somebody like a Vinegar Syndrome or an Arrow or a Criterion, these people are cleaning the stuff up, and it's gorgeous, and the sound is decent, you know, unlike on the VHSs oh, or DVDs. did you see the announcement today? They, they did a deal with the Shipix? Yes, I heard about that, yeah. So, uh, but it's something weird stuff. It's not like a distribution. Like, you know, I mean, when I reviewed his stuff, it was all no, like the old pornos. No, like, it's uh, all be the occasional crossover. Yeah. She owns. Right. I think a lot of it's going to be stuff we want to see that Distripix has. Like, you know, he, he's been reading garbage cans and whatever. <laughs> I don't know. They, they got to stop with these terrible fucking artwork things. Oh, God, don't even mention that. I, I didn't want to get into that part. But, yeah, the strip picks, he's, he was with me. I did a bunch of his reviews early no, on. He's he he still putting those, uh, what was Radley Metzger's porn name when, when, was, when I was doing all the Metzger stuff? He, oh, uh, Henry Paris. Henry Paris, right. So I did most Henry, of those films. Henry Paris. But, yeah, I remember talking to Roberta Finley. She's, like, laughing her ass off when I mentioned his name, you know, Henry Paris or Henry Paris. He's like, I gave him that name. <laughs> He's like looking for like a, a nom de guerre. He's like, he's like, yeah, it's just like that. So she, yeah, next movie. All right, so next movie, busting actually. Keeping the theme, Peter Hyams, who later gave us our Elliot Gould shows Capricorn One, our Sean Connery shows Outland, our Jean Claude Van Damme shows Time Cop and Sudden Death. Good movies. Huh? Our Arnold Schwarzenegger shows End of Days, and the highly entertaining Billy Crystal Gregory Hines buddy cop film Running Scared essentially debuts here with this fun tale of two sardonic vice cops dealing with the seedy underbelly of Los Angeles. I guess when directors looking to make a New York City cop film can't afford heading east for location footage, they settle for L.A. or Frisco. It seems to be a steady alternative for the same exact kind of film and vibe. Gould, who we devoted an entire show to, and now deceased accused wife murderer Robert Blake of our Wesley Snipes and Jennifer Lopez shows Money Train. I love you, man. I'm blunt. I pull up punches. The segue is, like, amazing. (laughs) Or a proto Starsky and Hutch. Busting is widely known as the direct inspiration for that very series, who go around busting pimps like the future Huggy Bear himself, Antonio Fargus, gay bars and whores like the stunning Cornelia Sharp of the Serpico reincarnation of Peter Proud and Venom from our Klaus Kinski and Oliver Reed shows. Recognizable fat sleazy guy character actor Michael Lerner of our Charles Bronson show St. <laughs> Oz. Charles Bronson show St. Oz and Borderline, and our Eddie Murphy shows Harlem Nights as one of her Johns. Alan Garfield, where Brian De Palma shows Hi Mom, or George Siegel shows Alan the Pussycat, and our John Belushi shows Continental Divide, is the mobster running all these rackets, who's got the department in his pocket, running much of the evidence absent or inadmissible, and getting them booted down to grunt duty. Rather than sit back and take it, they take the fight to him, actively hawking the guy, preemptively busting or messing up his various rackets, and even harassing him and his family, until they somewhat ambiguously take him out with unreasonable force roll credits. I always, always like this one. I've mentioned it several times over the years on the show. From the always welcome half hour or so pursuit of Sharp, who enlivens every picture I've seen her in. She's fucking gorgeous. To that scene in the gay bar with Fargus. This is appropriately sleazy, 70s Manhattan style, grim and filthy, and Gould is almost always likable and funny in his films, hence our show on the man. 
Blank is more or less wallpaper, but provides enough of a straight man slash foil for Ghoul to justify his presence. And while it's hardly top tier in a purely objective sense, it's loads of fun and well worth checking out, particularly if you enjoy the comedic streetwise buddy cop by of a Starsky and Hutch, albeit without that show's ridiculously blatant homoerotic overtones. It's funny, you mentioned this one, and I found it on my shelf, because even though it's a United Artists picture, Warner Archive had it. I was just deleted from the catalog, so I like was actually sitting there. <laughs> and uh, you know what? You know, Robert Blake, we talked offline about a couple of Robert Blake films that like we thought would be, well, one especially, we thought maybe it would be uh, an addition, then we decided not. And not bad. You know, it's an odd combination, though. And Elliot Gould was still at the height of his popularity, working with Donald Sutherland and lots of other things. It's, uh, yeah, it's a West Coast picture, so it's not New York, but it's it's got enough sleaze to please everyone. And uh, Cornelia Sharp, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she's going to come up again later, too. Yeah, I, I don't know why. But, like, Cornelia Sharp was like... <sighs> yeah, no, she is smoking hot. Smoking hot. But, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later. But anyway, <laughs> Peter Hyams, who has a long career. Yeah, we covered him for Outland, for sure. In our Outland time, so. and uh, the Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, right, the Van Damme films. There's a whole bunch of things. Undercover, whatever it is. And, you know, Soldier thing, thingy. Universal Soldier. <laughs> Sorry, Universal Soldier, thank you so much. It was close. It was like the porn movie on Van Damme, Undercover Soldier. They go to a, they go to a military base and they've been lonely. So, <laughs> no, Universal Soldier, which is a great picture. And Hyam's son is taking up the mantle, directing as well. He's pretty good. But it's not a great picture. I thought it's too much all over the place, but... Uh, I thought busting is of its time, and more people should see it, so try to track it down. Oh, yeah. Definitely, if you like Starsky and Hutch, I mean, this is like a step up from that. It's where they got the idea from in the first place. So, next up, Police Connection, also known as the Mad Bomber. You'll never believe who the fuck directed this one. Bert I. Gordon, the cheesy 1950s giant monster man behind such opus magni as The Cyclops, Amazing Colossal Man, Beginning of the End, Earth vs. the Spider, War of the Colossal Beast, Attack of the Puppet People, Village of the Giants, The Magic Sword, The Orson Welles starring Audi Necromancy, Food of the Gods, and Empire of the Ants breaks formation with the entirety of his career for this one-off oddity that marries the sort of grim policier that we've been talking tonight, like a port to the Commissioner Serpico, to the Italian policial Tecci for this proto-speed from a Sandra Bullock show, minus the whole bus bit. Big and small-screen cowboy-turned-off-kilter cult film actor Chuck Connors of Kill Them All and Come Back Alone, our sci-fi with a message slash sci-fi in the 70s show Soylent Green, our Richard Harris shows 994400 is Dead, Trap, and Japanese disaster film Virus, there's a fucked-up right-wing dork whose daughter overdosed and wife dumped him as a consequence. He's the sort of balding dork who pushes his glasses up his nose when talking to you, and the sort of MAGA Karen type who delivers obnoxious diatribes to everyone with the misfortune of running across him. He yells at a waitress because she doesn't look him in the eyes taking his order and demands she calls him sir. He yells at patrolling cops apropos of nothing. He yells at teenagers for wearing short skirts and talking about teen pregnancy. He's quite contemporary, sadly enough. 
Nowadays, he'd be a devoted consumer of AM talk radio, Fox, OAN, Newsmax, or News Nation. Also like MAGA, he's not just an obnoxious, mouthy asshole. He's a fucking domestic terrorist setting bombs in random locations like a high school, a hospital, or a crowded city street to, quote, protest everyone losing what he considers their moral compass. Actually, anyone who disagrees with his backward views and uptight lifestyle. Where things really get weird was when Ben Casey himself, Vince Edwards, of our Stanley Kubrick shows The Killing and our Full Moon Pictures show Cellar Dweller, there's a combination for you, finds his only lead as to the terrorist identity is the serial rapist and murderer Neville Brand of the original DOA, and we discussed the remake on our Charlotte Rampunk show, the awful psychic killer reviewed over at thirdeyesentiment.wordpress.com, Without Warning, discussed in the course of our Mission Impossible show, and the absurd old folks home of cult actors Opus Evils of the Night, who was the only witness to the bomber while he was raping Charlie Varick's cute blonde Christina Hart at the same time that Connors was planning his hospital bomb. From here, the film turns into a dual pursuit of both Brand and, by extension, Connors as they continue their respective sprees. Making things weirder, Brand is or should be getting some at home from sexpot bit player Elona Wilson, who goes from glasses-bedecked housewife type to nudie short and home photography pinup girl at the drop of a hat. Brand's place is filled with sexy blow-ups of her, and he checks off the home movies of her stripping and doing housework de Chabulet. Her curly hair gives her a frumpy look, but it's pretty obvious she's free-living and exhibitionistic, and when she puts on a blonde wig, holy crap! There's no logical reason for this guy to be out raping other women, which leaves a huge gaping plot hole in the film. But it's grim, it's gritty, and it's pretty damn awesome if you're into this sort of cop film business. Connors and Brand are fucking freaks, Edwards is believably terse and upset about all this, and a few of the ladies are lookers, and the whole Dennis Hopper speed stick is done so much better and more realistically here, you'd never believe it. A surprising hidden gem. What's your take? Yeah, it's a hidden gem for sure. The fine thing was, around the same time period, there was a, a movie, which I recall seeing, which starred Monty Markham. Monty Markham was a TV presence, and he did uh, some, some feature films. As a psychic, it's a similar story to this. He, he was a psychic, and he saw a bomber, and like I had Telly Savalas, a very hard film to find. And I've, I've been looking for it for decades. I saw it once, and then it disappeared. Anyway, Police Connection was the only one that's like that, that's still around. And, you know, like uh, Vince Edwards, you know, Vince Edwards. Ben Casey, right? Yes, yep. Uh, ben Casey and... Uh, he did, he did a Bond-type picture, Hammerhead, mm-hmm. and um, his style is uh, terse, uh, mature, but yeah, he gets the job done. Chuck Connors is after the rifleman. He kind of plays weirdos. <laughs> and Neville Brand, <laughs> after his Western heyday of TV, plays weirdos. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's like, uh, this is a very strange movie. But you know what? It works. And it's a bit gritty. And um, like the film I just talked about that I would love to see again, I've never been able to track down, with much of the same cast members in supporting roles, it's it's not a bad. The Police Connection, The Man Bomber, you can find it on. If anybody's unable to find this movie, there's a couple of multi-disc. Was it Mill Creek? Remember Mill oh, Creek? yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Mill Creek has that one or like box sets, like 50 movies or 100 movies, like 
It's like 10 discs, and each disc has like 20 pictures. Mm -hmm. I'm not verifying the kind of quality, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 I think people should see it. You think people should see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not bad. Yeah, so next up, Serpico. Mm. Don't worry about the quotas right now. A couple of hooker calls to keep things cool. Sydney Lumina writes, Sophia Loren shows that kind of woman. Our Sean Connery shows the Anderson tapes and the offense. Our Jackie Bissett, Tony Perkins, and Sean Connery shows Murder in the Orient Express. Our Al Pacino shows Dog Day Afternoon. Our Richard Burton shows Equus, and Michael Caine shows Death Trap. Directs this only slightly fictionalized biopic of New York cop Frank Serpica, who's the man responsible for the very existence of internal affairs, if not breaking the thin blue line in the first place. Somebody's got to grow a pair, stand up to the mob, and say, that's enough. This stops now. A hippie type of rookie who prefers to work plain clothes, he takes all sorts of shit from the department, including they're trying to frame him as being a homosexual, then still just the side of an actual crime, particularly when his entire personal integrity, particularly when his personal integrity prevents him from taking kickbacks from mob racketeers, which the entire fucking department does gleefully to turn a blind eye. Yeah. After being laughed at and pressured to buy in, he goes to his buddy Tony Roberts of taking a pal on one, two, three, and Woody Allen's Play It Again, Sam, Annie Hall, Stardust Memories, and Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy, who's some rich fuck connected with the mayor's office and such like. He gets a promising bit of interest and support from higher up, only to have the whole thing quashed by the mayor and later the DA himself. He goes to the papers who print an expose, but naturally there's retaliation. They just reassigned Serpico to a dicey vice squad detail, where his new partners just so happen to let him get shot in the head by the perp. He survives to bring this whole thing to the feds, but he's totally penalized physically, career-wise, and forced to move out of the area. Actually, he left the country for ratting out these blue-suited shitheads. Obviously, we did cover this for our Al Pacino show. The best parts of this, beyond all that sleazy, gritty, early 70s Manhattan location footage and ambiance, involve his stunning girlfriend Cornelia Sharp of Busting, reincarnation of Peter Froud and Arkinsky and Reed shows Venom, his later attempt to romance his new neighbor after Sharp leaves him, and a few sequences showing him to be a decent, well-meaning guy, like when he buys a dog from a litter being sold by a pair of hippies. Pacino is amazing as ever, that guy may well be, or at least have been, our greatest living actor, but the film is dark as hell and delivers a grim if sadly ultra-realistic message about standing up to evil in a world set up to foment, protect, and put in positions of, quote, authority, unquote, the very worst of us, while screwing the restaurants for the tiniest deviation from towing the official line. I don't recall you ever saying that about hell. You you think that he's one of our yeah. greatest living I I always thought that. I, I know I said it during the Pacino show. He's fucking great. He always, yeah. He's fucking great. Even when he... What was that movie? He played the blind gentleman. Oh, yeah. It was The Scent of a Woman? Yeah. And, and, and... Oh, gosh. I always thought that. I mean, I know you... I think you won that, too. I know you're a big De Niro fan, but I always prefer Pacino. I, I have a lot of respect for Al Pacino. Even though he became kind of shouty, you know, whatever lately. <laughs> No, but no, Al, Al's, actually, Al's in The Irishman, too, which is another great fucking Scorsese picture. Anyway, so, yeah, I'm glad you wanted to mention this one, because, uh, oh, it's, it's just a rough movie to watch, yeah. because they begin with this guy, he's like, you know, he's an undercover cop, and blah, 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 and... He's just trying to do the right thing, and there's so much corruption in the New York Police Department. Now, 
I'm a little older than you, so I remember there were hearings on TV, in fucking television. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing Frank Serpico, the real guy, on TV, yeah. But there were hearings where they were talking about the corruption in the New York City Police Department. Yep. This is how bad it was. If America and New York City was straight, there'd be hearings today, but there's not, because there's corruption so bad, mm -hmm. you never see shit like that again. Mm -hmm. So... Frank Serpico was like, it's a hero. Oh yeah, you know the guy. The guy was like, there's corruption. And they still try to paint him like, oh yeah, he's a complicated figure. You know, he's like, he might be questionable. So we get the fuck out of here. They're still covering up for it. Yeah, yeah, he's he's not questionable. No, and, there's and, nothing and, questionable about it. And when he was shot, and and yeah, Cornelius shot. Oh, oh, Marky. <laughs> She's something else. I mean, every time I see her, I didn't even recognize her in all these movies. I'm like, oh, Green Crush and Peter Pratt. Holy shit, who's that? Busting. Oh, oh shit, who's that? You know, this one. Oh, shit, who's that? It, well, so is her. So <laughs> anybody who doesn't know Cornelia Sharp is, <laughs> she's thin. Blonde. She's thin frame, but she's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We both have a Cornelia Sharp thing going on. Yeah, for sure. So it is a great film. Great film. And... It's got very rich uh, supporting performances mm -hmm. by people, some people you may have seen. But you never heard of. If you look at the names in the cast, you're like, who are these people? <laughs> right, but, but when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, I've seen that person, I've seen that person. You can't place them. And it's not a fun film. It, it reminds me a lot of uh, Reports of the Commissioner in certain respects. Uh, but, it's rough. Yeah, it's, it's something else. It's very intense. Yeah, Al, Al Pacino was like, you know what? Yeah, between this and Dog Day Afternoon, oh, yeah. which is the same, mm -hmm. same time period, I felt bad for the guy. Like, dude, you are working so fucking hard. And Injustice for All was not that far away either. A little bit yes. later, but, you know. Yeah, and, and you were working. You, this is what's in my mind. You are working so fucking hard to entertain people. Mm -hmm. And how much... The only person I saw... Regarding Serpico, the only person I ever saw immerse themselves in a role like Serpico was Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. Okay, yeah. And, and I was like, holy shit. Yeah, and it's not like I usually knock the method for all these people all flipping out and stuff because, oh, yeah, you know, look, De Niro thinks he's Satan it's and Angel Heart. Like, it's not method. Yeah, I, he's I, like I, really embodies the part, but he's not going to go home and like flip out because he thinks he's Frank Serpico. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> he's just a, that good an actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's that good of an actor. And Al Pacino and Serpico, excellent, excellent. And like I just said, the only thing. The only performance I ever seen comparable was Martin Sheen of all people, right? Mm -hmm. In Apocalypse Now, where he he just he owned that role. Mm -hmm. He just took that, and and I was like, wow, it's rare. Mm -hmm. Not saying Al hasn't done other good work. There's done a lot of good work. <laughs> a lot of good work. Dog Day Afternoon. And... But once you get past Sea of Love, it's kind of like Jack Nicholson once he got into the 80s and stuff like Wolf. And like, all right, yeah, you know, he's kind of doesn't care anymore. He's too old to really throw himself into things. It's not like he's a bad actor all of a sudden. It's just like, yeah, you know, whatever. It's more dashed there, off. There, there are things, yeah, yeah. I get it. But, but now it's a, it's a good film, good choice. Yeah, so next up, Charlie Varick. 
Don Siegel, who directed The Ridiculous Flaming Star from our Elvis film show and numerous films from our Clint Eastwood show, Coogan's Bluff, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, Dirty Harry, Escape from Alcatraz, plus our Michael Caine show's Black Windmill and our Charles Bronson and Donald Pleasant show's Telephone, more or less hits another one into the rafters with this first of three films we'll be talking to, featuring the unlikely lead Walter Matthau. We covered this one on our Joe Don Baker show with good reason. Despite not showing up till a good 45 minutes into the picture, Joe Don steals the show with his fastidious and fairly clearly coded gay psycho hitman who commandeers a trailer park whorehouse for a place to stay, but has no interest sleeping with horrors, at least knowingly, and terrorizes Andor, kills every single contact along the way, tailing bank robber and reluctant thief of a mob money laundering handoff, Mathow. Matthew, strangely enough, given his putative leading man credit and lion's share of the screen time, is far less engaging a figure than the mobsters and assassin he manages to outwit solely by means of forethought and savvy. That's pretty much the entire plot. Matthew arguing with his surviving younger partner from the original four-person heist, prepping and plotting his getaway and presumed death, and evading Joe Don's single-minded killer. The fun is in the details. Matthau, who starred in our Elvis film show's King Creole, our Cary Grant show's Charade, our Tony Curtis show's Goodbye Charlie, and our Richard Burton show's Candy, would parlay his role here into a trio of gritty crime pictures, all of which we'll be discussing tonight, despite only one of them actually being set in Manhattan, before falling back into comedy with our Richard Benjamin show's The Sunshine Boys and House Calls, the geriatric spy affair Hopscotch, which is actually really good, and our Klaus Kinski show's Buddy Buddy. Shereen North, the hard-bargaining passport forger, would go on to the aforementioned telephone. John Vernon, mobster held responsible for the disastrous money laundering operation, hails from Hitchcock's Topaz. Our Clint Eastwood shows Dirty Harry and Outlaw Josie Wales. Our Michael Caine shows The Black Windmill. Our Black Exploitation shows Drum. Our Amicus shows The Uncanny. And our John Belushi shows Animal House, before going on to a string of super low-budget cult pictures in the 80s. And Norman Fell followed our Tony Curtis shows The Rat Race. Our Frank Sinatra shows Ocean Eleven. Our Steve McQueen Queen shows Bullet, our Charles Bronson shows The Stone Killer, and our Tony Perkins and Richard Benjamin shows Catch-22 with this one. And we continue on to our exploitation shows Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold, the hilarious Airport 75, reviewed over at 3rdsm.wordpress.com, our Burt Reynolds shows The End, one of the better stripper movies of the late 80s, early 90s, Strip to Kill, and the hilariously stupid Bud the Chud, Mr. Roper My Ass. This guy deserves much more credit, as amusing as his role in that ripoff of the UK's Man About the House actually was. He was really pretty solid as a you know, character actor and playing sergeants and cops and such like. Unless we forget, the host of the ridiculous Pat Robertson primetime special, Don't Ask Me, Ask God. Uh, it's it's a good one. I mean, it doesn't quite fit in with these, but since we were covering two Walter Matthau films, I'm like, let's throw this one in too. So what's your take? I, I never know what to think about this movie because uh, you're after decades of uh, Walter Matthau. Comedies. Working with uh, Rock Hudson, Tony Randall, a bunch of other people. Don't forget the original odd couple on stage in the movie. Yeah, the original odd couple on stage that uh, Walter would suddenly turn into like a villain type. I know a lot of people love this. Don Siegel, you know, everybody loves Don Siegel, Dirty Harry, all these other cool pictures. I had a problem with this movie because it's like suddenly Walter Matthau was like dick. You know? <laughs> but the, the great supporting cast kind of like, okay, we can slide for this. Even Benson Fong is in this thing. Remember Benson Fong for all these TV shows? Oh, we got Norman Fell. You mentioned Norman Fell. Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of Charlie Varick. I know there are people who love it. I'll just say 
for a Don Siegel picture. I, I know people love Charlie Brown. I'm not one of them, but it's what happens. So next up, taking a Pelham 123. By far the best of the three Walter Matthau crime films, this one comes courtesy of a Joseph Sargent, actually a paisan, Giuseppe Sargente of your adoptive hometown, Jersey City, whose actual career was spotty at best. He gave us the boring Colossus, the Forbin Project, the excellent pilot to Kojak, also sold as the Marxist Nelson Murders TV movie, our Burt Reynolds shows Dicey White Lightning, the Susan Anton sports thriller Golden Girl, and the profoundly weird anthology Nightmares, whose teen trapped in a video game episode was later improved upon greatly by Albert Piona in our Full Moon Picture Show's Arcade, and that's about it. Walter Matthau returns, and this time takes a far more central role as the New York City Transit Cop Lieutenant, hey, my grandfather's on the Transit Force too, who has to outsmart and manage negotiations with a quartet of psychoterrorists who own an entire subway train for ransom. Robert Shaw of a trio of James Bond shows from Russia with Love, A Town Called Hell, Jaws, the 1977 Black Sunday, and our Jackie Bishop shows The Deep. Martin Balsam of our Tony Perkins show Psycho, our Richard Benjamin and Tony Perkins shows Catch-22, our Sean Connery shows Anderson Tapes, our Bronson shows The Stone Killer, our Joe Don Baker shows Mitchell, and our Satan in the 70s shows The Sentinel, and Hector Elizondo of Report to the Commissioner are three of the baddies who don fake mustachios, trench coat, and hat to hijack a downtown subway train. The rest of the film is a tense, long-distance standoff between the four, who clearly know the ins and outs of the MTA and how to circumvent all the usual checks and balances against trains going out of control or what have you. And Mathau, fellow Lieutenant Jerry Stiller, who go on to the hilarious Airport 75, also reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com, the hilariously gay monster in a bathhouse epic, The Ritz, which we talked about. Oh, I, I like the, the Ritz. I like the Ritz. <laughs> yes, we talked about once or twice on the show. And rare domestic nun-splitter Nasty Habits with Linda Jackson, Mayor Tony Roberts of Serpica and MTA headquarters over the lives of the 18 passengers. There's an undercover cop involved and a whole lot of slow burn twists and turns before the denouement. I remember seeing this one as a kid and falling in love with it, and I was very happy to see it released on Blue a few years back, and I've revisited several times since. If there's any flaw to this one, it's that with the cops mostly stuck at home base and the rest of the action centered in the interior of the subway car they corral all the passengers into, there's not enough sleazy Manhattan visual aesthetic on display, and modern viewers accustomed to the crazy maverick cop slash stunt nonsense of the post Chuck Norris Arnold Schwarzenegger and we did shows on both men, 80s action film, may find things a bit quiet, if still tense. It's hardly the understated political machinations and Gordian knot twists of something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or an Alistair McLean film adaptation, but this is probably the most realistic hostage negotiation and attempts to foil same ever captured on film, and it's so much of its error in location, it shits roasted chestnuts and streetcar hot pretzels and stinks of garbage strikes and graffiti. What's your take? I like this one. This yeah. is a good one. Uh, it's a good one. Joseph Sargent is a journeyman director. He's involved in so many movies, so many movies. So, <laughs> where do we begin? You know, it's like <laughs> these crazy nut jobs, all calling themselves by the name of colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Mr. Robert, Blue and Mr. Green. Yeah, yeah. Robert Shore, Mark Balsam, Carl Heinemann, Hector Elizondo, so on and so forth. And uh, it's funny. I love Walter Matthau so much because he's like an earthy everyman. Yes. Yeah. How is it? How is this? You're doing what? <laughs> yeah, tell me you can't get the mayor out of bed because the mayor's got the flu or some shit. And he's yeah, gonna... <laughs> yeah. Tell me you can't get the mayor out of bed. What the hell's going on? We got 18 lives in our hands. <laughs> and, and Robert Shaw. 
this is uh, pre-Jaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Robert Shaw is just like so eloquently sinister. It's just like everything he says and does has a meaning, but maybe not. Yeah, it was just funny. They remade this in 1990-ish. No, 2009, sorry. With Denzel and John Travolta. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't bad. So as far as remakes of a classic New York-centric film, taking Apollo 1, 2, 3, the remake in 2009 with Travolta and um, Denzel Washington was not bad. But this film, I think it's golden. Right? It it's, is. And even that weird subdued ending where he finally like gets him right outside. He, he goes to the guy's apartment, the, the guy that pulled this whole thing up on Balsam. And, uh, you know, they're kind of visiting. And he's going to, like, you know, have a little chat with him. And it's dingy. And he, like, lights a cigar off his stove where he's got the money stored. And nothing goes on fire, strangely enough. But then he sneezes, and they knew he had a cold. And it's like, right away, you see Walter Matthau, like, look at him and smiles. We're about to walk out the door. And he's like, ah, I got you. And then the credits roll. I'm like, oh, that was nice. Oh, yeah. He opens, <laughs> he opens the door. He opens the yeah. door again. Yeah. Because he recognized the voice and the sneezing, yeah. Cause, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's a really good one. And that's part of why I always wanted to cover these three films. And I was like, well, you know, Walter Matthews, we covered some of those other ones. as comedies, and I didn't really like get into that much deeper than I did. But this was like, okay, you know what? This is definitely part of the show. The, oh, the no, next film is sort of part of the show. So here, so laughing is next? Yes, The Laughing Policeman. A Stuart Rosenberg, who gave us a Tony Perkins show's AM Talk Radio slash Fox News Expose, WUSA, WUSA, and our Charles Bronson show's Flawed and Love and Bullets, gives Matthew his last straight crime film role as the San Francisco police lieutenant investigating a mass murder on a bus. Gee, you think they saw I was taking a poem 123? Where his ex-partner was one of the victims. Turns out that said former partner was following up on a cold case where some rich corporate fuck killed his wife. Could there be a connection? Matthew and his racist, loudmouth current partner Bruce Dern of Hitchcock's Marnie and Family Plot, our Peter Fonda show's Wild Angels on the Trip, Psych Out, Castle Keep, which we have discussed in uh, a recent show, the insane Casey Kasem exploiter, Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, Silent Running from a Sci-Fi with a Message show, and terrorist thriller Black Sunday, where he's a complete asshole, uh, head out to finish the case that Matthew's deceased partner was working on. The usual crazy car chases, sleazy red herring suspects, and scummy New York City 70s style vibe ensue. This one's pretty close to template. Charlie Varick was the biggest stretch of the three and in fact of this entire show. But it's another good gritty policier of the era. Dern is a complete asshole, but useful and other notable faces pepper the cast, like Lou Gossett Jr. of our Jackie Bissett shows The Deep, our Blaxploitation shows JD's Revenge, the hilarious Jaws 3D, and our Chuck Norris shows Firewalker, Anthony Zerby of our Sci-Fi of the Message shows The Omega Man, our Steve McQueen shows Papal Young, our Robert Mitchum shows Farewell My Lovely, our Frank Sinatra shows The First Deadly Sin, and our trio of Bond shows License to Kill, and his magnum opus, Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park, and the original Wonder Woman, Kathleen Crosby, over at Dan Curtis in the 70s shows, Kolchak the Night Stalker, all up here. I won't get more of the particulars of the plot here, but basically, yeah, it's, it's exactly what you think it is, and it is very gritty and very much of this style of film. I did enjoy the hell out of it. Not as much as Pelham, but I definitely really always held this one pretty highly. What's your take? Yeah, it's not as good as Pelham, but uh, Laughing Policeman, which is uh, based on a series of novels by uh, two Swedish, yes, two Swedish authors, Maj Sjolwal and Kurt Wallow. Mm-hmm. They wrote a series of books about uh, detectives. Oddly enough, this one was chosen to be 
translated and uh, to become a, a major motion picture. Yeah, it takes place in San Francisco, which is outside of the New York realm. But, you know, it's pretty gritty. Yeah. It's pretty weird. And it's... Uh, it's very much the same vibe as the stuff we're talking about tonight. Yeah, yeah. Stuart Rosenberg was a journeyman director. Well, he's done mm -hmm. some good stuff. I kind of like the cast in this. You know, like Bruce Dern's like Walter Matthau's like second. And uh, Lou Gossett, Anthony Zerbe's Lieutenant, Paul Costello. Gosh, we've seen that face so many times. And other people in this. The thing is, this one's a bit off-kelter. Because, mm -hmm. well, we're talking about a one-armed killer. Mm-hmm. Are we, are we not? Yeah. So so it's it's a very strange picture in the way. I like it. I like it. It's yeah. different. So next up, Fort Apache, the Bronx. We could all go around with our noses buried in the penal code. We could make 100 bum collars a day. The jails will be full. The neighborhood will be empty. And meanwhile, you ain't going to be one step closer to solving these killings. You can't go turn this neighborhood upside down every time somebody gets killed. Not even a cop. Nova Scotia expat Daniel Petrie, whose only notable credit otherwise was the Kenny Rogers family stinker six-pack, directs this old HBO standby with a real bite. Paul Newman of our Tony Perkins shows Woosa, Torn Curtain, and The Towering Inferno, delivers the one film in his career really worth investing the time to seeing. Ken Wall of Running Scared from a John Saxon show, not to be confused with the great Billy Crystal Gregory Hines buddy cop film mind, delivers the best thing in his short career as Newman's slightly more reluctant to shake the tree, but still basically a good person partner. Rachel Ticotten of our Arnold Schwarzenegger show's Total Recall and FX2 is Newman's bed partner slash nurse slash heroin junkie, seriously. Lou Grant himself, Ed Asner of Alistair McLean's The Satan Bug and, uh... Well, nothing else of any real note. It's the right-wing dickhead of a new precinct captain who starts all-out war in the streets with his Rudy Giuliani-esque fascist take on cleaning up the city. Pam Greer is the cracked-out psycho junkie who goes around shooting cops and slashing pimps' throats randomly, kicking off the events that spiral into the chaos that ensues. And Denny Ayeo of Defiance, The Protector, and our Eddie Murphy show's Harlem Nights is the dumb racist fuck cop who throws an innocent kid making out with his girl off a roof. The particulars of the plot really don't matter. You can kind of get the picture extrapolating from the above. And we covered this previously in our Pam Rear show, but it's really all about the vibrant capture of all this real-world South Bronx atmosphere when the place was a fucking disaster area. All tenement buildings and ruins, bordered over windows, crack houses, junkies, pimps, whores, Black Panther types, carjackings, you name it. It was still like this in the late 90s when uh, I actually had a friend that went into that area because he used to deal with Spanish girls. Holy shit, it just never changed. I actually got... Uh, I ruined my car's oil pan on that because I got off on the wrong exit and went up in the Bronx, next South Bronx, and I hit going back up because I was like, how the fuck do I get out of here? And the cops like, oh yeah, he's wondering why I was stopping to talk to him, I'm like you know, because everybody's like they're hanging around the corner all these like drunkies and whatever the hell else with it going on, and uh, I pull up to him, I was like, how the fuck do I get out of here? I'm getting here by accident. Okay, go this way, and the off ramp going back into Manhattan. It's a huge fucking crater of a pothole there. So, bam, hit that damn thing. Like, wow, that was it. But anyway, so like I said, it was still lasted this way right into the 90s and beyond. Newman, Wall, and most of the department are actually pretty laid back about it, at least accepted in the community, until Greer kills a pair of rookies one morning, and Asner takes over for the retiring precinct captain with his Republican law and order agenda and complete lack of understanding of how the neighborhood actually works or how to deal with the community that lives there good and bad alike. If it was my brother who threw that kid off a roof, you would have turned him in in no problem. It's only because they're cops that you got a conscience about it. 
Beyond the long and fruitless search for the cop killer, she's actually gutted by a drug-dealing pimp who tries to take advantage of her for being a chicken head when she slashes his face with a razor in a crack house. They never actually find the culprit that caused this whole huge political social mess and riots in the streets. How real world is that? There's the angle of Newman getting involved with Dakota, despite seeing her track marks, and then her suddenly ODing near the end. Numerous huge protests that turn into riots at the station, and what becomes the real linchpin of the film. Newman and Wallace seeing Ayala kill that Spanish kid, and being hesitant to throw away their careers by crossing the thin blue line and nailing him for it. He finally does it in the end, after Dakota dies, and he finally finds his, you know, resolve, I guess. And there's a sort of happy open ending, I guess, where after resigning, he still winds up bagging a perp with wall. Whatever. Newman was always very socially conscious. He, he actually started a company later in his life, purely non-profit, to give the proceeds to various causes that his daughter still sort of half-ass runs. And many of his films come with a good message bubbling beneath. Woosa, anyone? This one's no exception. But as a youngster, I just remember the terse siege situation that ensued when Asner stuck his dumbass white bread foot in it. It actually gets really crazy, particularly as the station is pretty run down with flimsy, beat-up old termite-written front doors without a lock, and they're facing off against a whole neighborhood worth of angry people throwing shit and worse. It's like when W stirred shit up in the Middle East. You just don't try to impose crazy shit on people when you don't even understand how things run, because you probably can't handle what happens next. I always liked this one, and Newman, to a lesser extent Wall, are the most likable and relatable they ever were in their entire careers. So, what's your take on this one? Oh, it's really good. It's really good. Uh, you know, Paul Newman... I watch it a lot. Paul Newman, whatever you can say, he had a long career, mm-hmm. you know, until his illness. He often took on parts in his later years with social conscience. Mm-hmm. This picture, which... Surprisingly good. Pam Greer, Ken Ball, Ed Asner, Richard Sakotin. Whatever happened to her? I don't know. She's big for a couple of years though. Kathleen Beller, Miguel Pinero, Dominic Chirinese, we know he did Sopranos, Paul Gleason, we know he did other work. And it's just like very evocative of New York in that time period and mm-hmm. the Bronx. Yep. The, you know, Dan, Daniel Petrie was a journeyman director, and uh, sometimes he did very, very good work, and sometimes he did, he did journeyman work, but it's true. And um, But this movie really, really worked. And mm-hmm. uh, and Ed Asner was such a picture on TV, was such a dick. <laughs> yes. Yep. Completely opposite to his own politics, by the way, but yeah. Yeah, very opposite to his own politics. Yes, correct. It's a really good picture. And, you know, Paul Newman, I know you don't like a lot of his stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the films don't appeal to me, but he was a good actor. And he certainly is, like, on the right side of history, or was. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, he was on the good side of history. I think at some points he was a very good actor. Mm-hmm. When he got into later years, he was very choosy. Mm-hmm about what he was going to do, because he didn't make many pictures when he got older. Yeah. And this was surely an oddball choice. And uh, I still don't know how I feel about this movie, because it's one of the pictures, films, from this period that we're here discussing, where it ends like so fucking downbeat. Mm. I'm like... Well, unless you want to call that a happy end that he really didn't resign because he goes back to being a cop so he can't stop. But, you know, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, dark. Yeah, yeah it's, it's... I don't know. Yeah, I always loved it, and I've seen it many, many times, just like some of the other ones I mentioned tonight. But, yeah. Yeah, you loved it. I, I 
I'm not ambivalent about it. I'm just, uh, I wish it was better. I wish they cleaned up. I wish they did something about the ending, but we can't always get what we want. Yeah, and that's actually kind of realistic, too. Sure. Most of these films, they all have dark endings, not because, yeah, man, you know, Vietnam, Watergate, America sucks. Yeah, okay, you got that vibe going on. Like, okay, you know, we got fooled. You know, we, we blew it from Easy Rider. But there's also just more of the reality. The 70s was very, let's be realistic for a chance. Let's stop this Hollywood day glow, happy ending. You know, the, the hero walks in the room. Oh, you're right about that. You're right about that. And so in that aspect, or Patrick the Bronx. It's probably a movie that uh, deserves uh, people to revisit it. Yeah. So next up, Nighthawks. We covered this one in our Sylvester Stallone show. On the surface, it looks like an all-star extravaganza of sorts with Billy D. Williams, whose only real credits revolve around the Star Wars films, and a long stint of Jerry Curl and Colt 45 malt liquor ads, but who managed to be the number one sex symbol for black ladies in the 80s. To this day, you talk to an older black woman, and they go, Billy D! And they get really excited, so yeah, it was a thing. Bionic woman, Lindsay Wagner. Persis Kambata of our William Shatner show's Star Trek The Motion Picture, noted Megabomb Megaforce, the fun post-apocalyptic epic Phoenix the Warrior, and our Donald Pleasant show's far less interesting Warrior of the Lost World, Joe Spinell of Maniac the Seven Ups, our Robert Mitchum show's Farewell My Lovely, our Peter Fonda show's 92 in the Shade, our Arnold Schwarzenegger show's Stay Hungry, Luigi Coetzee's Star Crash, our Al Pacino show's Cruising, and our Tony Perkins show's Winter Kills, among others, in a slightly bigger role than usual as the grouchy lieutenant they report to. And even, check this one out, Jamie Gillis from our Golden Age of Porn show is here as a bitchy queen fashionista. And Rooker Howard of uh, Lady Hawk, I guess, filling in as a bigger budget, less impressive Richard Lynch. Unfortunately, it's a big fucking mess. Stallone is shooting for Al Pacino territory here as a cop, something he'd carry off much better with a more comedic tone in Tango and Crash or Stop for My Normal Shoot. But Poe-faced? Sly, I mean, we love Sly. We didn't show on him, but he just didn't have the gravitas or the chops to pull it off. Howard and Kambada are psychoterrorists. Stallone and Billy Dee are trying to catch him. Wagner is barely in the damn picture thanks to all her scenes being left on the cutting room floor as Stallone's ex-wife, Joe Spinell is the grumpy lieutenant who demands action. The good thing about this, besides seeing so many disparate cult film and television figures together in the same picture, is once again that gritty early 80s Manhattan settings and vibe. But the script, the editing, and even some of the acting, Stallone in particular, honestly, falls flat. Director Bruce Malmus' best, or certainly funniest, film was the tacky proto-lifetime magnum opus, Where Are the Children?, which deserves a home video release simply for its ridiculous baddie, who's clearly wearing a pillow under his sweater to look like a fat guy, traps these kids in his attic room and sings this great song, It's milk and cookie time, before smacking a curious neighbor across the back of a head with a shovel, exclaiming, Foreigners! It's fucking hilarious. My folks were watching this all po-faced and wrapped up in it, and I was there roaring with laughter. Like, you're sick. But then I edited out all his scenes and played it back to him, and then they both realized just how ridiculous it was. But, yeah, he didn't do much of anything as a director, except for one of the detestable Steven Seagal's two watchable films, Hard to Kill, being more, quote, notable for little bit parts, and cameos in the Karate Kid films and flipping burgers and Stand By Me. Seriously, he did, like, bit part acting. This film is evidence why. While it certainly fits the show theme, and more so being a cop film than films of similar aesthetic from the era like Maniac, New York Ripper, and Parts of Nightmare, a Scavellini film. It's one of the least of the films we're discussing tonight, which is a damn shame. It could have and should have been so much better. But as it is, it's kind of a curio. What do you think of this one? I like this movie. Really? You're fucking wrong. <laughs> okay, tell me why. <laughs> I get 
kidding. I'm kidding. I know. I just disagree. <laughs> I think I think it's one of Sylvester Stallone's best films. Really? Wow. Yes, really. Okay. And and uh, but what's weird about it? What's weird about it is that it comes across as a uh, you know he's he's done the uh, you know he's done the Rambo thing yep. and all kinds of shit. Previous to this, Rambo, Rocky, Rocky, etc., etc., and I like the feel of this because it's very gritty. Oh yeah, it's very, very New York. Yes, and so the beard's still on, which he looks pretty good. You know, like like he's trying to be Pacino and Serpico, more or less. Yeah, yeah, it looks like Pacino and Serpico. Yeah, and I like this because um, it was different, and the killings are more. Slasher. Mm-hmm. I film things that are normal, and I love the things like uh, I don't know how it's designed or how it's intended. Like Slice sitting on like a stoop after failing to save somebody, and like just sitting there feeling like I oh, fucked up, you know. And Rucker Howard, a year after uh, Blade Runner. It's, it's just really good as a villain. I don't know. I like this one a lot more than you do. And I, I think this is one of Sly's best pictures. Wow, really? Because I was just like, he just doesn't work in this. I mean, I know what he's trying to do, but he wasn't there yet. So anyway, <laughs> we're allowed to disagree. Yeah, I'm just surprised. No, I'm like, really? We agree. We disagree. Yeah. This is what we're about. So next up, Defiance. Producer Jerry Bruckheimer gave us our Robert Mitchum show's Farewell, My Lovely, the Nastasia Kinski Cat People, and seedy, flashy pseudo-sex flicks like American Jiggle and Flashdance, before hitting the big time with their Eddie Murphy show's Beverly Hills Cop films and Top Gun, hires a John Flynn whose few directorial credits are so completely forgettable that Steven Seagal vehicle Out for Justice stands out as the obvious best to helm this oddly decent HBO staple. J. Michael Vincent of our Charles Bronson shows The Mechanic, trippy Native American opus Shadow of the Hawk, our sci-fi with the message shows Damnation Alley, and our Burt Reynolds shows Hooper, is a merchant seaman whose lack of funds led to him temporarily moving into a South Bronx-style ghetto neighborhood and running into all sorts of problems for not cowing down to the local low-rent street gang and its crown of thorns tattooed four-headed Spanish pimp leader. Seriously. He quickly befriends several neighborhood locals like the, eh, Teresa Saldana of our Bronson show's Evil That Men Do, who actually comes off as kind of cute when she gets all excited and competitive when he takes her bowling. Honeymooner and deli owner Art Carney of our Richard Benjamin show's House Calls, the Star Wars Christmas special, and our Arnold Schwarzenegger show's Last Action Hero, and initially belligerent neighbor and former 50s JD Danny Aiello of Fort Apache the Bronx, the protector, and our Eddie Murphy show's Harlem Knights in his most likable role. It's literally impossible not to root for Vincent, as he, like myself in my grade school days, stands up for those who can't stand for themselves as well as himself against a horde of bullies. And the one stretch of the film is that his one-man war against these fucks actually inspires not only Ayeo and his fellow ex-gangbangers, but the entire town to finally stand up to them and take the neighborhood back. Ayeo goes from being an obnoxious jerk-off to a sympathetic, even likable guy who finally gets his mojo back and proves the first one to stand up alongside Vincent when the others are all too scared to act. This one feels way too familiar for my personal comfort, but I think a lot of folks need to see this one and hopefully get the message. Let these fucks get away with it, be they local kid assholes like this, or Republican corporatocratic screamers trying to scam, steal, and gerrymander their way into absolute power over the rest of us. Check out the things that Trump has planned. And we all fall together. So why not man up and stand together to crush them like the roaches of society they are? I like this film. What's your take? 
It's okay. I'm reading some comments by John Flynn, who was the director, and director Jan Michael Vincent. Jan was a drinker. Even then, he had Heineken's for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I know. I saw John Michael Vincent a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, toward the end, he since passed, and he was a complete fucking mess. <laughs> so, uh, as far as this movie goes, it's... It, yo, it, it, uh, it, 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 yo, it, <laughs> it, it fills into our category of what we're talking about tonight. Jerry Buckheimer produces, by the way, folks. So it has some money behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very good picture about the early days of the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. and... And it's not really a cop film. It's not really a vigilante film. It's more just about street crime and, you know, having some basically manning up and standing up to it. And what the real stretch of it was actually getting the whole town to follow his example. I agree. I agree. Yeah. No, it's it's not a bad movie. It's not pictures of it, but be that as it may. What's next? Vigilante. When I was a kid, I could sleep with the windows open. I wonder whatever happened to that. We let it get away from us. And now that we want it back, we can't even pay for it. Bill Lustig, former head honcho of Anchor Bay and subsequent owner and head of the endlessly self-regurgitating Blue Underground. How many thousands of times have they released the same fucking 10 DVDs and Blu-rays and 4Ks and used to be a filmmaker. He was a porno filmmaker and we covered his work on A Saint, A Woman, A Devil, The Violation of Claudia and Hot Honey over at thirdicemmer.wordpress.com. And he turned slasher film man, most notably the Joe Spinell Maniac, but also the Maniac Cop films and that really silly Uncle Sam and this one. And one thing he was deservedly noted for, he captured the seedy underbelly of New York City like no other and on a very consistent basis. We got a system of laws, of course, protecting us. System my ass. What goddamn system? Who are they protecting? The scum on the streets or us? That's why I carry that. That's my judge and my jury. You figure that's the answer, huh? And what happens if you do something to me I don't like? Or I don't like the way some guy's got his hair parted? Pretty soon you got assholes all over the street looking to blow each other's brains out. If I do that, what makes me different than these scum? Robert Forster of our Rock Hudson shows Avalanche, our Tony Perkins and Ryan McDowell shows The Black Hole, and our Chuck Norris shows boring-ass Delta Force, takes the lead as an everyday New Yorker whose wife and son get stabbed and killed respectively by yet another sleazy multi-ethnic gang a la Defiance or the Death Wish films just because she helped some guy being robbed by them at a gas station that day. Forced debates with co-worker and self-styled vigilante Fred the Hammer Williamson of our Donald Sutherland and Elliot Goulchill's MASH and our Black Exploitation shows Hammer, Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem, Hammer, That Man Bolt, Three Tough Guys, Three the Hard Way, Boss, Bucktown, Mean Johnny Barrows, and Death Journey, among others, over the U.S. criminal justice system, but decides playing it by the book is the only rational way to go, which is either smart or really fucking naive, depending on how you look at it. So Forster and legally blonde-style bubblehead blonde D.A. Carol Lindley of our Oliver Reed shows The Shuttered Room, Larry Hagman's Beware the Blob and The Poseidon Adventure, go to court once the perps are identified, but just like a good Republican, the scumbag in question bribes both sleazy defense attorney Joe Spinell and the judge, who promptly give this guy a suspended sentence and let him go. Forster quite rightly attacks the shithead judge and winds up going down for a 30-day stretch where he's about to go prison gay in the showers as a new fish in the tank. Luckily for him, Woody Strode of our Bridget Bardot and Sean Connery shows Shalico, Black Rodeo, Fernando DeLeo's Manhunt, Enzo Castellari's Kayoma, Byron Quisenberry's Scream, and our William Shatner shows Kingdom of the Spiders steps in and saves him. 
When he gets out, Foster finally realizes the cops and the courts are all on the take and hence useless, so he wises up and alongside Williamson and a few like-minded locals, hunt down the head gangbanger and take his ass out. Forster's wife gets out of the hospital, but leaves him because she can't face what went down. He catches up with the second-in-command, and after a big chase in car and on foot, gets him to confess before taking his ass out as well. And just to make sure we leave with a sense of justice well done, he gets that fucking judge with a car bomb and rides off out of the city. It's a vigilante film. It's got... The same kind of problems you would have with Bronson films or with Clint Eastwood films, the Dirty Harry stuff. It's got that sort of fascist vibe to it. But as you heard from the dialogue early on, there's a sense of, well, yeah, but what about this? And this is going to turn into a bigger problem. But then again, the system's failing. So what the hell are you going to do? you got to take care of yourself. You can't just let people get away with shit. So it's very realistically divided on the issues and i will say intelligently so as well because both sides are presented it's just in the end you could definitely have issues with it but i did like this film i always liked it and it is so so new york city in that era i mean like when he's running across the top of the buildings and jumping fences and you'll see if you watch this film you will get a kick out of that for sure no matter how you feel about the film itself what's your take Oh, it's one of the classics of the genre. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Robert Forster, who never got his due until Jackie Brown, mm-hmm. where he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. God bless him. Mm-hmm. Fred Williamson, Tanya Alda. That's the wife. Billy Cologne, Patton's Dead Guy, Joe Spinell, Carol Lindley, Freaky Freaky, Steve James, Woody Strode. I mean, the. It just goes on and on. And, you know, it just... So, it's a rough movie. Yeah, the oh, yeah. Thing, the thing was, Williams' last thing is when he made X films, when he made uh, sex films, they always had a tinge of roughness oh, yeah. in them. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. So, when Will Lustig moved over, and he probably should have stayed in the genre. Who knows what he was capable of? When he did something like this, he made a vigilante. It was like a vigilante movie dealing with stuff that was going on in New York at the time. He's a New York boy, realistic. And unfortunately, though, it's uh, it's rough. It's a rough picture to watch. Yeah, picture like Death Wish, but not quite as grim by any means. And it doesn't have the cheesiness of, like, the later Death Wish films where it goes all day-glow and 80s and silly, like Exterminator 2. It's very, very gritty. And all those films are like this. They show the reality of what New York was like, especially the nightlife and dealing with certain areas and certain neighborhoods at that time. And that's why I, I love these films for that. But, yes, oh. it's, it's dark as hell in other ways. So, next up, The Protector. The next two films hail from James Glickenhaus, who also produced Lustig's Maniac Cop and Fred Henlauter's Basket Case 2 and 3. Jackie Chan, who had emerged from a hapless comedic Bruce Lee wannabe and sub-Shaw Brothers-style kung fu films, kicked off his international career with a few missteps. First, Enter the Dragon and Hot Potatoes' Robert Klaus dropped in lame The Big Brawl in a Golden Harvest Warner Brothers co-production, but it went nowhere, and deservedly so. Then he appeared in the ensemble cast of our Burt Reynolds show's Cannibal Run, a last gasp revival attempt of the Mad Men world-style genre of the 60s, like our Tony Curtis show's The Great Race, for example. And then, nearly five years on, his last attempt to break stateside was James Glickenhouse's The Protector. Chan and Denny Aiello, Vigilante and Fort Apache of the Bronx, are New York City beat cops. Chan's former partner was killed during a barroom stick-up, and despite his offing all the baddies, he gets demoted for it. 
After a kidnapping of a gangster's daughter, Chan and new partner Ayeo Falsum leaves that take him to a Chinatown Tong leader and drug smuggler, Rory Chow from our Joe Don Baker show's Golden Needles, first to a massage parlor where the two get service interruptus by their masseuses, who have a very different concept of a happy ending, then all the way to Hong Kong. They wreck one of Chow's crack house production facilities, oddly people entirely by females, who in tried and true form are buck naked. They actually do this to make sure that nobody's using and stealing goods for their own use. But they're not all women. <laughs> That's what's so funny about this. There's another big fight in their warehouse in the docks. There's a huge fight between Chan and 80s wrestler Big John Stud on a T-bar suspended from a derrick. And Ayeo, till now likable, turns out to be on the take and the whole department with him. Chan drops the crane's contents into the Tong Lord's copter, roll credits. Wow, that was pretty different from the usual Jackie Chan film. Chan and Glickenhaus were very much at odds throughout the filming, and Chan actually managed to get a hold of it and re-edit the thing for domestic release in Asia. Unfortunately, his version removes all the good stuff, leaving that version a boulderized, almost TV-friendly take on a film that really gets by mainly on the strength of its sleeves and violence, not despite it. The early stuff fits right in with our show tonight, but as noted, it shifts after about a third way through to Hong Kong, where it feels more like the one of the seedier late 70s, maybe early 80s proto-category 3 Shaw Brothers films, particularly stuff like Human Lanterns or Oily Maniac in terms of sheer grindhouse sleeves and volume of nudity. It has its merits in that respect. It's definitely a good grindhouse film. It definitely, in the early parts, has a lot of New York City vibe. But it's a strange one, to be sure. And it's really not a Jackie Chan film, even though it is a Jackie Chan film, if you get what I mean. What's your take? I like the Glickenhaus version, because it was yes. like more of a action movie with a twist. And the Jackie Chan version, I, I, I don't know what was going on with that. I think he tried to clean it up. Yeah, it didn't work. You can't clean this up. Yeah, like I, I think Jackie Chan tried to, like, well, it was too dark. We'll make my version of this. Oh, there's too much nudity. I can't have that. And there's too much this. I was like, well, what's the point? He has nothing left to offer other than that Derek fight. Yeah, like, well, people who like Moon Lee, do you want to see Moon Lee naked? Well, <laughs> is that Sally? Yeah, this and this. Uh, you know, seriously, though, this is a pretty good movie. Yeah, no, it's good I, for what it is. I think The Protector is a very underrated film in the Jackie Chan filmography. Mm-hmm. More people should check it out. But that saying, there's like all these versions out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I prefer the the Glickenhaus. That guy's <laughs> name is like fucking <laughs> for a second. version. Yeah, no, that's definitely the way to go. If you're watching this, you're watching it because it's a good Glickenhaus film that happens to have Jackie Chan in it. You don't go watching this like I want to see a Jackie Chan film. Let's put on the Protector. Much less putting on the Jackie Chan version, which is really like. TV friendly and boulderized. Forget that one. Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> so, next up, The Exterminator. These comics are terrible. Whatever happened to Moon Mullins and Buck Rogers? <laughs> Another Glickenhaus production. This one comes five years prior to The Protector and hence bears far more of that grim, seedy 70s Manhattan vibe. Goofy ass Robert Ginty, who had bit part and terrorist through a two-minute warning, but otherwise was a TV bit player at best, is the titular Vietnam vet who works in a warehouse with his best buddy and fellow non-vet Steve James, who played a bit part as a cop in Vigilante, like you have noted earlier, but is better noted for his co-starring role in the Michael Dudikoff American Ninja films, Avenging Force as well from our Canon Film Show, as well as our Chuck Norris show's Delta Force and Hero in the Terror, and Don the Dragon Wilson's Blood Fist 5, and if you want to hear me go into detail on all those Don the Dragon and Billy Blanks films, check out 
our old episodes of NI Level, we had about two or three months worth of shows where that was an ongoing bit. I just tell them about the stuff I had seen because I was watching them in like en masse at the time. A local street gang breaks in to steal a few cases of beer and runs afoul of Ginty and James, who winds up crippled in a very nasty way when they target him later. Ginty slaps on a flamethrower and starts going after the gang, and a mobster running a protections racket on his boss, who really loves 50s funny papers, and a kitty porn ringleader. He does a lot of good along the way, and in some surprisingly extreme, violent ways for American exploitation. It's the sort of thing that you're more likely to see in an Italian or Japanese grindhouse fair. And, of course, the cops, particularly Detective Christopher George of William Girdler's Grizzly and Day of the Animals, or Lucio Fulci shows City of the Living Dead, Graduation Day, our canon film shows Enter the Ninja and One Piece Simone's Pieces, are more interested in catching Ginty than they are in cleaning up the city's crime problem. And Ginty is reluctantly forced to take out James, who begs for euthanasia. You can see what kind of film this is, how dark it gets. George finally catches up to Ginty, but is gunned down by his own squad, and Ginty escapes so that we can have the all-time cheese classic of a sequel. Samantha Egger of Cary Grant shows Walk Don't Run, Armando Crispino's The Etruscan Kills Again, also known as The Dead or Alive. Our amicus shows The Uncanny, Curtains, and the ridiculous Demonoid reviewed over at thirdassembly.wordpress.com briefly appears as a shrink. This is one over-the-top film. There's a reason that this one, more so than The Protector, had a reputation among both Grindhouse and action film vigilante justice film fans for decades. Ginty isn't all that terrible an actor, but it seems a weird choice for the sort of uber-violent and incredibly dark film that even a Charles Bronson or Clint Eastwood would turn down. He's pretty goofy-looking, like a pudgy-faced yuppie office manager or insurance salesman, going all commando on these sleazebags and mobsters. Steve James, for what little screen time he gets, is surprisingly good, which would become more evident in his more co-leading man work alongside the still unlikely, if far more believable than Ginty, action hero Michael Dudikoff, where he's downright likable and incredibly tough, but it's ultimately a thankless, melodramatic role. George is his usual crusty, hard-boiled style roguish self, but again, the film centers more on Ginty and all the wrongdoing comeuppance than any of its characters, which is something of a recurrent failing of Glickenhouse's few actual directing stints. But yeah, I mean, the, it's a grindhouse classic for a reason. You will see this thing, and if you enjoy this in drop, or you aren't like, oh, yeesh, <laughs> you haven't seen the film. What's your take? Yeah, oh, yeesh. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot of violence. Steve James, I have a, a comment to make on that. Steve James was one of the uh, early people that subscribed to my fanzine. Mm-hmm. He sent me a fan note. The Steve James sent me a letter once. I like what you're doing. Please keep it up. Something I kept it somewhere. Follow. Yeah, because you used to sell those uh, fanzines at uh, Tower Records back in those days, right in the city. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I remember going through all those kind of things. I have some fanzines from those days myself. Not just yours, but other people's. Yeah, I was like, Steve James wrote to me. I was like, fuck. <laughs> Man, that's just big. That's big. Yeah. Because. Because he was such a nice guy, you know. He, he, you can tell when you see when you see the Dudikoff films. You can tell, and even here before it, you know things go ugly, yeah, you know, he's he's a good guy. He was a good guy. Yeah, yeah, he was. Unfortunately, he died young. He died young. Yeah. So this movie is rough and mean, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know it's funny. Robert Ginty is not someone we always would think of as being uh, an action hero. Action hero, or as yeah. a, a like, uh, somebody who would be a uh, mean, evil fucking guy avenging people. But Like I say, he looks like a yuppie office worker or something. <laughs> but then but again, works. you watch this. And, it, worked, yeah. it worked in this. Who the hell yeah. knew? Yep. So, uh, 
the last one we're going to do today is Exterminator 2. <laughs> Literally the only film directed by the producer of the first Exterminator, Mark Buntsman. And he didn't produce much more than those two films either. Mario Van Peebles, the kid whose dad gave him feedy in an early age by having him fuck a literal hooker on camera in the detestably awful Sweet Sweetback's badass song, got his second role ever here as a ridiculously over-the-top, only in the 80s from coolest white men, post-apocalyptic Michael Jackson wannabe gangbanger, quote, X. More on that later. He parlayed this inauspicious beginning by continuing to play more or less the same part, and then forgotten even by fans, Breaking 3, a.k.a. Rappin', 80s teen sex comedy Last Resort, which I think came from Julie Corman, or Michael Caine show's Jaws the Revenge, and our Wesley Snipes show's New Jack City. Deborah Geffner of the pre-Conan Sandler Bergman dance film All That Jazz, which you mentioned earlier, and the Maudlin Dorothy Stratton biopic Star 80, both directed by the arrogant Bob Fosse, probably the only man, like I said earlier, to direct an audio hagiography about himself, and really nothing else after, is the, get this, dive bar stripper whose idea of a pole dance is doing half-assed ballet in point, seriously, who falls for schlubby, pudgy-faced expat vigilante Robert Ginty. Van Peebles is absurdly extreme, not only with terrible pop-eyed over-emotive acting and ridiculous Hollywood idea of a gang in the 80s costumery, but in that he's a small-time gangbanger who robs armored cars, shoots down police copters, holds weird satanic cult-like meetings that look like rituals, and cuts deals with mob drug lords. It's completely batshit insane from start to finish. They get pissed at Ginty, a garbage man of all things, and his pal Frankie Vazen of the Natasha Kinsey Cat People, our Richard Benjamin shows Money Pit, and our Eddie Murphy shows Coming to America, and stalk Ginty and Geffner by following the garbage truck to her apartment, hey, hot date, going out with a garbage man, uh, and to their afternoon in the park, where they promptly cripple and let her kill her. Along the way, our sanitation engineer heroes retrofit their garbage truck so it's more like a makeshift tank, equip it with machine gunnery and military-grade rocket launchers, and use that to go after Van Peebles and company. Even beyond all this insanity, the ending gets even funnier when Ginty manages to booby-trap a bag of heroin with explosives, which nails Van Peebles at last. Holy shlamoly, this one's even funnier than Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. Garbage Day! We discussed this one in our canon film shows. Even beyond the on-screen inanity, this one was kind of a mess with canon and Bunsman at odds, Ginty being off-double by an extra hiding under the Welder's mask, budget issues necessitating a shift in location shooting from Manhattan to Los Angeles, and the general inexperience of Bunsman, whose lack of directorial control led, among other things, to Van Peebles' character being nameless, hence X, script doctoring and reshoots by another director, and a run-in with the MPAA over some over-the-top violence. Sheesh, who greenlit this? But Camp and Cheese fans like myself are glad they did. It's funny as hell. If you like stuff like, who was that one that did Frozen Scream? Or the guy uh, that did all those Bruce L.I. films? Dick Randall. If you like Dick Randall films, if you like Harmon, Renee Harmon films, this is right up your alley. It is ridiculous. Or even stuff later on, like some of those later Bronson films that I get a big kick out of. Like, what was the one with the naked killer that's a gay kid? Um, oh, oh. Yeah, Ten to Midnight, was that it? Ten to Midnight, uh, yes. Right, or that other one that was also really over-the-top and hilarious, uh, Kinjite. You know, if you like that kind of stuff, or Death Wish 3 or 4, whatever the one was that had Van Peebles or somebody like him in it, same idea. If you like that kind of cheesy, ridiculous, totally fabricated 80s over-the-top kind of action films, then you will love this one. Otherwise, you'll be like, what the hell did I just see and why? <laughs> What's your take? Boys in Lycus. Uh, yeah. It's it's rough, over the top, as you said. 
It's cartoonish, but nasty. <laughs> nasty. It's a nasty movie. I, I, I think that's the... Um, I think that's the final summation. It's a nasty movie. We, film was always supposed to portray nasty stuff, and I think this guy who came out of nowhere, who directed this movie, just kind of upped the ante, mm-hmm. and it's just like, no, no, no. Yeah. But some people like it, but uh, the first Exterminator is probably the better of all of them. Oh, by far, yeah. That, at least that one had Glickenhaus directing it. This guy was just the producer and never really produced much and never directed again. True. <laughs> so, so anyway, unless you have anything else to say on that, that is our show. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on New York City cop and crime films of the 70s and a few that are of very similar ilk. I'm not sure what we're going to be doing next time, but we will let you know soon. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. I'm also on threads now at uh, The Third Eye Cinema. Are you? Yes. Yeah, because Elon's just going fucking nuts. I mean, I don't know how many people are on threads yet, but I said, you know what, let's just find the alternative, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. I haven't used it too much, but I have posted a few things there. So, yes, if you want to see me on threads, I'm at The Third Eye Cinema. Uh, also, we're on Podbean, of course, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. You can look us up there, and it's Spotify, and at Amazon Podcasts, and any other place you get your stuff, maybe Stitcher, I don't even know. Under uh, Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular with the iTunes, it's ID 55340244. Otherwise, like I said, look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, and you will find us. So, is there anything else that you wanted to add to this? Or? Oh, thank, thank you for listening to the show. It's Gritty New York and the Environment. <laughs> of the uh, late 70s, early 1980s. We hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah. So again, Weird Scenes at the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. And we will see you again soon, hopefully with another brilliant idea that comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, this is a good idea. Came out of nowhere, who knows what we have become like. Exactly. So we will see you again soon. Yes. Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs> we have a lot of fun doing this, but we also think they're uh, informational and educational as well. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So we will see you again soon.
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, 
the career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network. Talk Radio. Hello. Hey, how are you? All right. How about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you heard some stories, but first off, I see you posted about Sinead O'Connor kicking the bucket, huh? Yeah. Yeah, you know, th- that was kind of a sad story. I was never a huge fan or anything, but she, <laughs> last I heard, she actually had kind of flipped out. Kind of like the same with the Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries. Uh, both of them kind of went schizo. And she was living in, like, no-tell motels on Route 46, you know, where people go to hook up with hookers or, you know, uh, have affairs, and the guys go score drugs and shit there. I think at one point they even they did a bus, and they had, like, underage, you know, like, human trafficking stuff going on there in some of these hotels and that, that route. So, yeah, that's the kind of place she wound up living at the end, because I guess, you know, she had the money or whatever. Like, seriously? Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, in a way, you know, it sucks to see somebody's dying when they're relatively young, but maybe it was a blessing. Yeah, last I, last I heard, there was an intervention done. Yeah. So, assuming that it was reported by the Irish Times, she was back there. Mm. Otherwise, it would have hit the major news here first. Yeah, right. Didn't say what happened. I'm sure we'll find out in the coming days. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sad. I it mean, is. It, it's very not talented, a... Very talented, but... Um, Demons. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, it's never a good thing to hear, but like I said, she was so messed up. It was like, well, what kind of life is that? You know? So I'm like, well, all right, I guess. Yeah. Mm. You got to kind of make the best of a bad situation there. So, uh. Did you see the, the Jamie Foxx video? No, no, what happened? Well, you, you've been hearing, you know, like all these, he's been sick, he had this, he had that. And yeah. He's, he's very tight. The whole family publicist, nobody was saying what was going on. Right. He released a video Monday uh, to the web, looking very thin, and he said, I was very sick. Thank you all for the care and for the love. I didn't want to post anything, and I didn't want anybody to post anything. They didn't know what was wrong with me. I had tubes in me. They were keeping me alive. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, what the hell happened to everybody? It's terrible. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened to that guy. Word is he, he had a, I don't know, if he had a stroke, he bounced back super fast. So it could have been something else. Everybody's got, like, horrible lives. I mean, even people that you think, okay, look, they made it in Hollywood or something, they're making money. And I know that guy, uh, Andrew Anderson, from, uh, I guess he's from that show Blackish. I've never seen it, but we saw him at the Tell the Truth he was hosting for years. Mm. And you see him now, and he's doing, like, you know, diabetes commercials or something. He looks so old and sick, big bags under his eyes. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, he used to be, like, a fat guy, but, you know, he seemed okay. And I was like, oh, my God, what happened to him? I guess it's, you know, something from the diabetes, but. Everybody's like, you know, I'm hearing all this shit everywhere. People that I know, people that you see in the media. I'm like, you know, I heard some kind of stupid thing about like kids now. They want to test them for cancer and they're like, before they hit 40. I'm like, what? So who knows? So the whole world's going down the toilet at once. Yeah. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, you know, is, you know, I've been telling you, I, I got sinus issues and I have like major teeth things going on. And okay. like, of course, it's Friday night. Mm-hmm. And I go past the guy I used and it's Saturday and you know a lot of these guys go away for the summer now yeah I'm like I gotta find a dentist so I found Dr. Wu Korean guy 
Okay. It was open. So I called. They said, oh, yeah, we can see you in like uh, 45 minutes. I'm like, oh, jeez, okay. Do you take my insurance? Yes. Okay, that's, that's the next important question. Right, that's a big obstacle. <laughs> he says, oh, you have, you have major problems with your gums, and you got so much plaque and gum disease. I'm like, yeah, how come you don't go often? And I'm like, because I hate pain. But I, I brush daily, I rinse daily with the, this, you know, good mouthwash. And I don't know, genetically, maybe it's, you know. So the guy, I said, look, I got a problem with this tooth and that tooth. So he pulled them. Mm-hmm. I think he pulled one the wrong one, but look at that. Oh, jeez. Okay. So he gave me, like, like uh, amoxicillin, you know, the powerful antibiotic. They don't give codeine anymore. They give um, ibuprofen by 800 milligrams. i never seen this. Yeah. I try not to take that because one night after a few days, because this is about three weeks ago, I, I took, popped one. I just felt a twinge of pain. Of course, one of the teeth was a root canal, my last remaining root canal. And let me tell you, I, I always tell everybody, you know, actors, actresses, you're on my friends list, you tell me you're going to, don't do it. Yeah. You know, I know you. it's all about the teeth, you know, but... Yeah. I say, pull that fucking thing, because root canals go bad over time as you age. Oh, jeez. And, and it was my la- it was a gold crown tooth. I mean, a gold tooth was covering yeah. it. So, yeah, I must have had really good insurance. Well, when I worked for the public library, and uh, I have to say the health insurance there was good. The pay sucked. But, and he goes, oh, yeah, this 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 fractured. And he had a problem with that one. It came out, but then it pieces broke and he had to dig and like so when you go for an extraction in my experience let the fucking pain uh the shot where let it take effect he took the shot and he's like five minutes later i'm like hey i'll give you another shot you know like thank you for seeing me but you know i'm like huh <laughs> so I still have two big holes in my mouth that are just starting to close. Was, uh, two and a half weeks later. I saw him last Saturday. He says, it's looking really good. Mm-hmm. But the problem is every time you eat anything, it gets stuck. Oh, yeah. That's, you know the story. I know, yeah. So, and now with this crazy weather, my sinuses are kicking in. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I, I know I have issues with my teeth, which are improving, by the way. He gave me a medicinal prescription strength stuff okay and so when i saw him i said look i'm I'm really pleased he goes no but you might have to consider i said yeah but it's barbaric now because i said well let's talk about dentures not that i'm into that yeah you know they don't have them like pop them in your mouth and use pepsi whatever yeah it was he says well what we do now is we remove all your teeth i'm like what my heart starts to race Remove all your teeth? He goes, yes, one setting. I'm like, look, I'm 62 years old. Yeah. I, is that healthy? And then, well, we measure first. So before we do that, we have this made. And so once the wounds are there, let me show you. He comes out with a set of teeth which has spikes in it for every tooth. Oh, my. Where do those go? Into your jaw. <sighs> hey. Hey. <laughs> I you, you can't see me. I'm sitting here with my mouth hanging open, and now when you said that, my head like was on my fist. Like I can't fucking believe I'm hearing this. Yeah, you know, like I'm not a fan of false teeth, whatever. Yeah, called. right. But you know, if they go bad over time, God knows what's going to happen in the next two years. But unlike 
I'll buy a pair at a Halloween store without thanks. You know? Exactly. You know, like Carol Channing, Martha Ray, you know, do that Pepsi Dent and Poly Dent and all that crap. My mother, my mother had them. Yeah. Um, George Washington with his wooden choppers. Well, the, the missus has them for uppers, but she, you know, she had bad teeth and she went to Filipino dentists. I'm not even going to go into that. She had a lot of issues. But this is the way they do it now. I'm like, you're not selling me on this. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, dentists are horrible, and the problem is, that's actually one of the things. I don't have dental. I haven't had dental since I lost the last job. So even though they claim that, oh, yeah, we do dental on this plan too, they don't. It's all one-star doctors. You look them up, everybody despises them, and they're all the kind. I went to one one time for one day and walked away like, you got to fucking kidding me, where they want to give you like four root canals as soon as you walk in the door. I'm like, I'm not going to those crazy people like that. Get out of here. So... I went back to my old dentist because, you know, you know, I told you about the one a couple months back where the front uh, cap order hose popped off and right. I had like the half the tooth missing. Well, okay, so recently, you know, I don't know, maybe like a month ago or something like that, I was flossing back there, which I apparently can't do anymore. I can just use the water pick because it's popped off my, uh, one of my crowns back there. I don't have too many. I think like one or two of them, but it popped it off. So I was like, okay, well, it's still solid. There's nothing wrong with it. It didn't like rot away or something. But I guess the glue gave out. So you texted had, me you had a dental emergency. Okay. I'm yeah, sorry. that was it, right. And then behind it, I had, because, you know, I got some old, old fillings, and there's so little of the tooth left holding the filling in, yeah. that one of the corners popped off. This has happened before. But I was like, all right, you know, you might as well take care of that, too, because I'm constantly, like, water picking and trying to keep it clean. But, you know, I'm sure at some point we've got to do something before something gets into the gums. And my dentist was, like you said, on vacation for the summer or something. So they gave me his new partner. I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. Turned out he was okay. It's just he's some old guy. I mean, like, old, old. Like, you're like, maybe he should be retired because he's a little bit doddering. <laughs> he was, like, talking to himself and muttering and starting to do things and then stopping and starting oh. again. I'm like, oh, boy. But he did okay otherwise. He did put the thing right back in. He just glued the crown back on. There's no problem there. And he says, yeah, you know, these old cements, they made them kind of like whatever, they, they die out. And I don't know what it was, you know, eight, ten years or something like that, which is about right. I got it for ten years. Fixed that one up. He's like, yeah, you'll be fine with that one. And the back one, he's like, yeah, it's a good thing you came in because, you know, if you kept going, this would have become a problem, but it's still okay. So he cleaned some shit out of there. <laughs> no, you know, they don't give you the uh, shots anymore with Novocaine unless you ask for it. What? Really? Yeah. He's like, well, okay, let me know how it is. You know, if you need something, we'll do something. So I'm sitting there, I'm squirming to see, like, I try not to say anything. I'm like, all right, whatever. So he drilled out to whatever hole's in there and then just put something, he like filled it over with, uh, I don't know what. Oh, it's I got, got the shot, man. Oh, yeah. Crazy. And uh, he had this nasty ass, uh, I don't know if she was like Filipino or Spanish assistant. Yeah, she was cute, but what a bitch. And she was like, and I was like joking with her afterwards, you know, trying to anyway. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, how'd you do? I was like, I'm all right, you know. I'll be sure to recommend you guys, you know, if somebody's looking for like uh, torture techniques, you know. <laughs> I feel like I've been to a dungeon or something, you know. Like, what the hell was this shit? But he's like, oh, you're not serious. It wasn't that bad. I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, it was, but all right, whatever. But, you know, I had to pay for all this crap out of pocket. They did give me a discount because I go to the place all the time or used to, but nonetheless. Oh, you haven't been in a cleaning for like what, four years or something other than these couple trips I had to do. And I said, well, yeah, I don't have any insurance. You know, they don't have anybody. Well, now you should come in because whatever. And I was like, all right, fine. How much is it going to cost? And they gave me a figure, and it wasn't that bad. And especially with this place, I know they'll cut me a deal. No big deal on that. So I would have did that right away or, you know, tomorrow. Trick is they're like, yeah, but if they want x-rays, then it goes up to, and every x-ray was like the same price as it cost for the cleaning. I'm like, I can't do that. 
So I don't know what the hell did we like tried several times to find. Okay, I got dentist recommendations. Are they in the plant? No. I look around online. Good dentists in the area. Are any of them in the plant? No. Look through the plant twice. I had my wife look through it twice. We did every single like reverse engineering upside down, backwards. Nobody takes this motherfucking plant except these people that are like, you know, yeah, okay, let's pull all your teeth out and stick spikes in there like your guy. I'm like, no, I'm not going to somewhere like that. Get the fuck out of here. So I don't know what to do. <laughs> Everything else has been okay. We've always found decent doctors and you yeah. know, but you know what though? We had the most mm-hmm. modern clinic. It was really super hot mm-hmm. the day I had my problems. And you know, I was sweating and I'm wiping it off. I brought a towel. It was really hot. And I uh, it was a twenty minute walk, you mm-hmm. know, right over yeah, it's walkable. But it was like really nicely air conditioned. And uh, so I guess it's a sister. She's mm-hmm. Korean. She's working there too, but she's very Americanized. Yeah. He's young, the dentist. He has no personality. He's not warm. He, he's so, you know, so last week when I did the checkup, he said everything's looking good. Mm-hmm. You got to do cleaning. You should get a deep cleaning, but there's a problem. What's that? Well, deep cleaning will loosen a lot of your teeth. Oh, my like, God. Oh. Really? And I'm like, no. Why the hell would you do that? Why would I do that? Exactly. You tell me I need a deep cleaning. You're gonna, My teeth will loosen. You'll have to get pulled. We're looking at pain. No. <laughs> exactly right and they're like oh you know because i don't have it now but in the past they're like oh look, you got some pocketing because you haven't got cleanings too often or whatever it, so then i started doing cleanings a lot when i still under the insurance but like yeah you know because what happens if you, if that cuts too much and the plaque goes down there it's been doing whatever hey. the gums loosen up and then the teeth start I'll to get send loose i'll you a picture of something you could buy on amazon you buy amazon right Sometimes. yeah all the time. yeah i'm gonna send you a picture of this thing he prescribed for me okay but i've been doing as told rinsing a lot so i don't think he's going to renew it it was only for one time yeah amazon has it really so yeah send me it yeah it's really good if you have issues with gums occasional breathing bleeding (laughs) yes that's the thing because the the stuff gets in there and it starts to bleed a lot and i do oh yeah yeah, no 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 i will promise i'll do it later yeah but, you know, I, I think I've gotten rid of the pocket, and at least the gums are pretty clean. And they're supposed to be pink, not red. So, you know, they're, they're more towards the pinkish end of things. So I'm basically okay as far as I know. It's yeah. just I can't get these cleanings because he's like, no, we can't take x-rays. So, like, give me a cleaning in the x-ray. I'm like, I don't know. And then, and then something else happened. What? <laughs> uh, last week, last uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah. I Yeah, I got a 65-inch Fitzio. Okay. Live TV. Oh, it died? No, I I go, I go to watch something. I'm like, that's a fucking cable. The power cable is yeah. kind of heavy. It fell out oh behind the TV on the ground. Right. So I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? It's hot out. So I had to move the speakers. Right, right. The thing that's on, it's heavy. And I got the receiver on this, the cable box, and the this. Yeah, a lot of shit. It's heavy. Yeah. Pulled everything out. I go back there with a flashlight. I can't find it. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I'll, I'll deal with this tomorrow. So I pushed it back. Right. Cause I didn't want the cat like, what's this? You know? <laughs> yeah, they will. So next day, six o'clock in the morning, pull everything out again, and I'm like, I can't find it. So what's the solution? Unplug everything. Uh... Follow the cord. I finally found it. I said, I'm gonna fucking tape this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and I mean, it's a heavy cable and it comes out. Yeah, I'm still operating on, uh, believe it or not, a 1990 Marantz uh, amplifier for my power for a system. Yeah, I've had to replace other components along the way, like the disc changer and whatever. You know, over the decades now, but 
the damn thing's fantastic, and it gives you so much power through these big-ass speakers I got for music, for TV, for whatever I'm going to watch, you know. So, <laughs> damn thing, the power button, because the remote, like, I don't know, fritzed out years ago, is this stupid-ass remote where you turn it up and down, and you actually see the dial moving up and down on the equipment. I don't know how they did it or why. Well, anyway, I was like... I had that broke, too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it broke years ago, the, the remote. Well, all right, fine. So, you got to get up and, like, turn it on and off all the time. No big deal. Trick is, it's like a push button turn on thing with like you know a very soft touch, whatever. Yeah. And now it's starting to act up. It doesn't always want to come on. You gotta be very deliberate. And maybe sometimes press it a couple times. You can afford all this shit. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what the hell am I gonna do? You can't replace this. Anyway, that's just bullshit like that because you mentioned that. But yeah, the real thing here is this asshole upstairs. Every time I think it's done, he like tests the waters again. Oh no, again? Well, yeah. All right. So anyway, first off, I think it was quiet for a bit. You know, for a while since we talked last about that shit. Mm. Well, mysteriously, and I do not think we talked or did a show since this happened, there was a horrible rainstorm one day. I don't know if you remember. It was really torrential. I mean, it was all through the morning and into the early afternoon and maybe the night before. It wasn't the one that just happened up in New York State where the uh, airplane washed away, but it was around that time or a little bit early, maybe a week or so earlier, and it was just crazy. I mean, really bad. So we had to go out that morning for something, despite the rain. Or, you know, it might have been in a break or something like that. So she was driving. Okay, she's been doing a lot of that since, you know, I had this procedure done. I'm starting to drive again, but I don't do it all the time. So we go out there in the morning, and her tires, back tires flat. I'm like, what the fuck? Did you hit something? You know, you figure, okay, you know, some of the places you go, people leave screws around or whatever, you know, construction sites, whatever. Something must have happened. Other side, rear tire, also flat. I'm like, oh, holy shit. Oh, you told me about this. You told me about this. Did I tell you about it on there? Yeah, you told me uh, about the tires. Okay, so, this motherfucker. So, we're kind of wondering, and I'm like, right away, I'm thinking, it's got to be him, because this is fucking deliberate. Nobody does this, especially not two rear tires on this car. And I'm like, why her? You know, she doesn't make any enemies. Right. So, the only person that's got a grudge is the one that she went up to talk to, right? So... We're kind of, like, biting. And then when I complain to the board and all this other stuff, I'm like, look, I'm hoping it's somebody not from our building. There's some kind of random weirdo. But why they would target just one car on the lot and just hers and, you know, deliberately pinhole two fucking tires that cost us all this money, right? Okay. Well, this is in the back of my head. And I'm talking to the super, and every once in a while, he's like, yeah, no, it has to be this fucking guy. Because he's talking about stuff that happened with him. He's like, yeah, the other day my wife comes home. And there's some guy in the parking lot where she pulls in the driveway, and he's kind of like sees her, he's glaring at her, and he slows down, you know, trying to make shit like they do, right? She's like, do you know anybody like that? I'm like, I would think it's that asshole upstairs, but you told me he had, like, short dreads. You know, I don't know, a bald guy, right? I've never seen him, but it's Bob's America, whatever. But, you know, that's my bet. That's who it was. He's like, I don't know, this guy's like a fucking asshole. No problem. Well, anyway, then around that same time, we had a day where... I mean, she's kind of noticing things on and off at night. It's I am hearing it, but it's not. It's just like normal apartment apartment stuff. It's probably past the hours normally, or a piece where they should be, like a normal person would. But you know, it's just like you hear some bass rumbling, the stupid beats or whatever. But it's not loud, loud like it was before. It's just like oh, okay, whatever. She's I don't know if I told you the problem here is she's got this fucking hyperacusis thing now from stress, okay. which is like you know your ears hear everything. Everything's too painful for you. So, and that's new. She never had this before. It just happened from this fucking stress. Then she gets another thing. Yeah, you told me about that, yeah. Yeah, and it's this fucking thing where they say, oh, yeah, it's it's normal. It happens to a lot of people when they're geriatric. 
She's not fucking geriatric by decades here. So, I mean, she's 10 years younger than me. So, I'm like, let's get this checked out. I don't know what the fuck that is. So, we go and get in a, trying to be an emergency appointment. He's like, okay, get him in quick because we don't know what this is. And he checks it out and he says, well, look, this is the deal. This is what you got. There's really nothing we can do about it. It's probably not going to bother you. You know, it might go away. It might, you might just get used to it, whatever. But it's nothing serious, so don't worry about it. It's just, you know, you don't have to stop stressing out because the one thing now we got to go to this other guy. They try to prescribe once again to somebody that was outside the plan, and they were like, "Oh yeah, it's gonna be two hundred fifty dollars just to see him, and then we got to do these tests, and it could go." You say it could go up or down. Like it's ever gonna go down. So who knows how much money that would have been. Luckily, somebody on her job, after many tries, recommended somebody else that is in the plan that they say, oh, yeah, and a couple people there I go to and say it's great. So we're going to go to them instead because <laughs> I have to go to the specialist. We're going to check this out. But it's all based on stress. And he was like, okay, well, what's going on? Anything happened lately? You guys are under a lot of stress? And we both go, yes. And he said, oh, that's it. And it's like, yeah, it's like you got to watch it, man. You, you, people suck. And because we're telling the story, and it's like you can't let them get to you. You can't let them kill you. Because basically you're killing yourself out, you know, freaking out about this shit. It's like yeah, you got to kind of find a way to decompress and forget about it. But anyway, you know, why? All the stress. So, okay, I'm trying to just, you know, have it cool off and stop worrying about stuff, stop pushing yourself so hard, whatever. And it was going good. We had like a week or so of this. And then one day, luckily she was out. This fucking guy started doing it again. I had played like two CDs, and it wasn't even like metal, believe it or not. It was just, I don't know what I was playing. Maybe it was The Fall or something. It wasn't even abrasive. It was more like kind of, you know, 80s post-punk sort of. It's got melody to it. You know, it's all kind of whatever. And it wasn't that fucking loud. Matter of fact, a neighbor came down when I was playing, and it was, I don't know, she gave us some Chinese cooking wine or some crap. She didn't like it. And she was worried because it had too much alcohol in it or something. So she's like, oh, here, you guys want to use this one? Yeah, sure. So she's standing there while I was playing. I didn't turn it down or nothing. So I was like, oh, look, I got this woman here that's, you know, a witness. She knows, and she's actually part of the board, believe it or not. And so, you know, you hear what the level of music I was playing. Apparently, this set him off, or he figured it was a good excuse, and started jamming this shit for, I don't know, at least like 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Luckily, she was working late that night for some reason. It's kind of an event she had. So when she came home, it was fine. But I'm, like, biting my tongue. It's like, oh, is everything? I'm like, um, okay, right? Sure. But then, like, a day or so later, something came up, and I'm like, yeah, she's like, what's on your mind? What's the matter? I'm like, all right, I didn't want to upset you, but this is what happened. And I went, and, oh, that was it. The guy sent me a reply email. He's like, what are you doing over there? I'm like, replying to this email. I sent it out to all the board members. I sent it to the, the management company. I'm like, look, this is what's going on. It's not a thing yet. It's not consistent yet, but this guy keeps doing this shit, and every time we go above a fucking whisper, this guy takes it as a cue to go turn this place into a concert hall, and we've got to stop this. This can't keep going on. You know, do I have to take this to fucking court or something? I mean, and I actually looked up, like, oh, what happens with this? Unfortunately, I tried to put the small claims court. I was like, I don't want to go through all that just to get, like, a couple thousand dollars. I want to shut this motherfucker down. Right. right? Especially since I really think he did this other shit to her fucking car, so I want to get him. You know, he owes me money now besides everything else. And that's mention the Ajita and all the shit she's gone through. So he's kind of, she thinks he's testing the waters again because he's kind of on and off. You'll hear him like in the first thing in the morning, very late before you go to sleep. You'll hear like low beats. And I told her, I was like, look, take yourself away from the situation. If you were in a normal apartment situation, yeah, we've been lucky. We've never had it all the years. I've been here 20 some odd years. But, you know, you hear things from other apartments. And it's not at a level that anybody would say, hey, you know, somebody's really blasting music up there. It's just kind of like, well, you hear the beats or whatever. You just kind of, you know, hopefully you turn something up, turn the air conditioner up, turn a, a radio show on, you know, turn the TV up, and you just ignore it. But, you know, with her ears being all acute and, and her being all stressed out, it's like, jeez. Oh, 
thankfully it's on and off at this point. He did a little bit earlier, and then it stopped. And then I was actually playing some music. I'm like, do I hear him playing it too? But then when I turned it off, I don't hear nothing. So, yeah, it's it's ongoing. It just never fucking ends. And I hate shit that never ends and goes away. We actually went down, because that was nothing. I ran into those people in the hall, one of the board members and the super. And they're both going on about, like, because it's almost like, look, we need to get fucking cameras in the lot, because whoever this is got away with this shit. We can't have this happen again to me or anybody else. You know, we've got people going around in this area stealing catalytic converters, and apparently it happened to the super's brother, not in this place, but, you know, a couple streets down, the town down. And, you know, this all kind of shit. Somebody actually got their car broken into in the lot. You know, I think they left it open or something stupid, but somebody went through there and ransacked it, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was like, oh, well, you know, we really need to do this. I really appreciate having in the halls or something. He has a couple down there to check things out. And apparently they're pushing back at him. Like, oh, this could be an invasion of privacy. I'm like, it's not a fucking invasion of privacy. You're not in their apartment. Who cares who walks through the halls? We need to know that. You know what I mean? If there's a problem. Right. Apparently some guy broke in with a Slim Jim. He didn't know what to call it. He's like, yeah, he has this thing he takes out of his pocket in the middle of the night. We saw it on camera. And he, like, popped the lock on the doors to come in and try to, like, rifle through the mail and steal people's mail. So they're actually, like, you know, the porch pirates, they're actually coming into buildings now and trying to steal people's mail. Do you have the camera outside your apartment door? Not outside the apartment door. Downstairs we do, and that's how he saw this stuff. Right. And there's a couple inside, and there's, like, one on the basement garage, which we're not in. But that's it. There's nothing on the rest of the lot. I'm like, so we got to do this. I'm like, this is bullshit. This is the time to put in this stuff and make sure it catches the whole lot. And then when you see something, take it to the fucking cops. So... You know, talking to these people back and forth with all this stuff. And then I found that, the, oh, by the way, because I mentioned what happened to her in the lot. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that's him. He, he shaved his head. He doesn't have the dreads anymore. I'm like, fucking, you know, all this stuff comes back to him. And, and the super's like, yeah, no, I, I knew right away when you told me that. It had to be him. It's like, And the guy's apparently giving him shit because he used to be like, yeah, every time you see him, he's like very suspicious and he kind of hides away and doesn't know whatever but then all of a sudden lately he's been really belligerent and she said that too like oh yeah they're really nasty all of a sudden and she sees him in the hallway well he's in some kind of story where he was like coming upstairs and he was moving some heavy shit and you know the super's like you know you, you really can't be doing that because you know you're gonna scratch up the walls or whatever you know what the hell are you doing and he's like started getting up in his face like being really belligerent wow. it's like yeah you know i want to tell this guy fuck you but you know i'm trying to keep the peace here like, so you know he's worried about being retaliated against himself so it's that kind of a situation. So these, I don't know how we got this fucking animal upstairs moved in here of all places because we see a lot of these new neighbors. And I'm showing my wife, I'm like, look, I'm actually, you know, I don't talk to people much because I just kind of like, you know, I try to keep my own business. But, you know, I've been meeting up with some of them, joking with some of these people, and they're all new, whatever the hell, young people, old people, whatever. And most of them seem pretty friendly, you know. There's not too many. And the ones that aren't, at least they keep to themselves. And I haven't seen any problems. This, why did we get this one fucking asshole in the building that's a real troublemaker from a goddamn ghetto tenement or something move above us and it's caused all this shit? And, you know, I am i can't fucking retaliate because, you know, it's, it's just going to cause more shit. So I'm trying to go and build a log with the management company and the board and trying to get these cameras in and trying to... I'm, I'm actually going to yell about the noise ordinance thing and see if they can fix that more, uh, make it better than it is. But, you know, again, nobody wants to just... Oh, nobody can play music in their place. Or who cares? You know, it, it doesn't matter unless it becomes like he's doing, where it's like, you know, rocking the house here at all hours. You know, there's all this shit going down. It's just like... Uh, I, I actually, when we did the police report from weeks ago when this happened, because I actually had a, the guy had to come back out because I says, you know, look, I went to my mechanic and he confirmed what the, the driver said, that those are pinholes and the fucking asshole destroyed the tires and we had to get new ones. So I was like, okay, yeah, I just want to make sure you add to the report. So he actually had to come back out here to talk to me to do it. But, you know, so I, was, I forgot about it after that because I was like, well, what's the piece of paper going to do? Nothing. 
but then talking to these people again was like, yeah, you know what? Let me get that fucking police report on you. So I had to go down there and pick it up. Of course, I went when they were closed. And all this just, they're funny, too. They won't let you in the front door. I went there at like, I don't know, 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock or something. And they're like, yes, what do you want? I'm like, what the hell is this? I couldn't even get in the door because the door to the police department was locked. The president? Yeah. They got the high desks and all that shit. So coming over to like a loudspeaker they got there, they're like, oh. Okay, yeah, you got to come back for those between whatever the hell, some stupid hours that nobody could possibly make, you know, because everybody's working. It's like in the afternoon or something during the day and a weekday. But, you know, I took care of it, but it was just like, wow, all this shit's been going on. It's like, well, okay, nothing quote-unquote severe has been happening, but a lot of shit's been happening. It's just been nonstop bad. I I haven't been to a police precinct in years, 10, 11 years. Uh, And the guy laughed at me. For what? Well, was, he had a good reason. Uh, yeah, I broke up with the high priestess, Deborah Lip. You know oh, that? yeah, yeah. Oh, was that the hex box? Did you report that? Hex box on my birthday, yeah. You reported to the cops? <laughs> well, I was like... Well, I guess it is kind of harassment, but... <laughs> well, yeah, I said, this is pretty weird, but uh, you probably never heard this before. He goes, try me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I dated a witch. And, uh, <laughs> she's like a super witch, and she's well-known, and... And we broke up. Yeah. And and she sends me all these fucking emails, and I deleted her, and I blocked her. And she sent me this box of stuff. So I, I explained to him in layman's terms so yeah. he would understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. And he goes, throw it away. <laughs> well, that doesn't quite work, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know. But you I, took I, care I was, of it. We, you mentioned that you took care of it, so I get you. Yeah, it was like the beads and everything. Mm-hmm. It was like the whole shebang. And it was like, um, I said, yeah, why did I even come here? But like, you don't know what to do at some point. I know. And it still does qualify as harassment, technically. But yeah, trying to explain that to a cop is like, <laughs> I laugh. Where do you go? I can't go to a priest. Yeah. <laughs> go to a boko or anything. <laughs> Or maybe I should have, you know. Hey, Papa Loa, you're in Jersey City. I'm sure they got those uh, Santeria Botanicas, you know. Go to the back room. There was. <laughs> oh, those guys don't go near. I heard strange things. Oh yeah, no, I don't, I'm actually not comfortable with myself. But you know, they're there, yeah. so. Kill can... this chicken in front of me, and I would take care of you. No, no, no. no. Uh, yeah, I used to tell people back in those days because I actually know some guys that were, you know, involved with that shit too. I'm like, no, nah, man, you know, I, I mess with all kinds of shit. I don't know them. I, that's that's not. That, that's not my thing. They advertise in the Spanish language newspaper. Oh yeah, no, it's big there. It's not a small thing. Oh, yeah, I go to the laundry. To kill time, I looked at the Spanish language newspapers. They got ads for hookers and massage parlors, you know, <laughs> Latinas available. I'm like, damn, they could do this. And then lots of ads for Santeria, you know, like yeah. voodoo men, voodoo priestesses. Yep. I'm like, wow. It's funny. And actually, the thing about the hookers, they do that, or they used to do it, in regular papers. Like, you know, you go into, like, in the sports section, if you because, you know, who the hell reads the sports sections if you're, like, guys? Mm. And they put stuff in there, and it's all, like, escort services and massage parlors. I'm like, what the fuck? I remember reading that at my grandfather's house. That's how long ago this was. And I'm like, wow, the sports pages are fucked up. <laughs> it's like reading Screw, almost. I mean, like, it's not that direct, but you know what I mean. It's there. It's very yeah, obvious. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's why you... I'm not going to go there. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, check this. <laughs> check this and uh, let me know. Yeah. Because okay. I did realize mm. I'm a stupid man, or I had a lot going on lately. Yeah. I had the mic turned the wrong way. Oh, okay. So for couple past couple of podcasts, I'm like, I had to boost the audio. I'm like, oh, 
It's facing the wrong way. Yeah, because I notice a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times you're like really low, and I'll, I'll have to boost certain things you say up. Just like I have to boost some of my stuff up or down too. So it's not, it doesn't mean anything. It's just like I wonder what's going on. And you had an echo on you. Remember I mentioned that? Yeah. Uh, there was like at least two shows where you had an echo on you. I'm like, what the hell? All so right, that's see probably if there's a... any echo. I, I yeah, I don't hear any now. I'll tell you that. But okay. All right, let me know. Right. Please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. Okay, this is a test. This is only a test. One, two, three, four. Bruce Dern sucks. <laughs>